And welcome to We Are The People Radio. This is your host, Jason Preston, my lovely co-host, Alexia Preston. How are you doing, beautiful? Doing very good. All right. Um, it, today is a very big show, and um, it's one that actually we've been working on for about uh, about, about eight months. And uh, we have a very special guest we're going to introduce you to here, here in a moment uh, who's uh, you know, flown into the state to help uh, expose this. But uh, due to the graphic nature of the content, uh, viewer discretion is advised. Uh, also, this, this is not a court of law. Um, the things we're sharing are not... Uh, we're not making accusations, uh, but what we are doing is we'll be reading victim statements and really hoping that people who have influence, people in power, will help um, bring justice to some of the issues and some of the darkness that's uh, apparently been happening here. We'll be reading statements from uh, young girls who have been abused in ways uh, that are painful and difficult to hear. Um, th this is this has been very difficult for for both of us to go through. And we understand it'll be difficult for, for people to, to wrap their heads around this. Um, one of the scriptures that obviously stuck out to me is that uh, is Ephesians 6.12. I, th I think this is one of the most appropriate scriptures for this show and for our day. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness in this world against spiritual wickedness in high places. And I really believe, and we've talked about on the show, that there's a principle of duality, that where there is uh, light, there is darkness, where there is, um, you know, from male, female, positive, negative. And I believe Utah is one of the greatest places of light and truth. And today what we're going to be talking about is the duality, the flip side of that, and uh, some, some things that... Um, we will be talking about spiritual wickedness in high places. And I ask that you keep your mind open. Uh, Alexa and I understand full well there will be consequences for what we're doing. And But as Patrick Henry stated, should I keep back my opinion at such a time through fear of giving offense, I should consider myself guilty of treason towards my country and an act of disloyalty towards the majesty of heaven, which I revere above all earthly kings. And the last thing I'm going to read before we start this show is uh, Doctrine and Covenants 123.13, and that's the overarching principle here. Therefore, that we should waste and wear out our lives in bringing to light all the hidden things of darkness. And uh, ask that uh, the Spirit of Sermon will be with people and with the viewers. And, you know, this is ultimately a battle of light and dark, that we all know that. And this is not our battle, this is God's battle. And uh, we just have to do our role in, in exposing these things and in doing what we can to bring justice to protect these, these children. Uh, Lexi, anything you want to add before we add, uh, introduce our guest? No, I, th I think you said it all. I, I hope our viewers will, will take this seriously, uh, that they will use discernment, uh, that you will also shield yourself. This is heavy, heavy stuff. Um, it might be hard. There will be some level of cognitive dissonance, but you know this is an interesting time to be alive. It's a fascinating and exciting time to be alive, and I feel it's it's our purpose, our job to put the information out there for you to discern what to do with it. Yeah, and I just pray that everyone will have the courage. You know, if you, if you find truth in these things, or if you see these things that there is truth, that you'll have the courage to stand up and help spread this because. 
darkness and evil grows in darkness. And what we're going to be doing today is, is trying to shine light on that. And uh, so God bless you. Let's get started. You and yes. Absolutely. Well, we are privileged to have in studio with us today, Goel. Uh, Goel is an investigative reporter. He's been doing this for, for 22 years. And as Jason said, everything that we're going to be presenting today has been substantiated. We have all of the source documents here uh, in studio. So source documents, when we, when we talk about that, we're talking about victim statements, court documents, uh, nothing unsubstantiated will be presented here today uh, as presented by Goel. So uh, I'm sure many of you will have questions. Um, we'll try to address them in follow-up shows and, and segments best as we can. Uh, hopefully this content will stay up. Um, and if you need to find the content, where can they find this content? Well, we're going to put all the uh, links and notes in, in, in the show notes. Uh, and obviously, I do not expect this to stay up on uh, YouTube, so uh, you'll be able to find the links to it on our website. But the best thing is go to Rumble and our Rumble channels, We Are The People, UT. And I also want to preface this by saying none of us are suicidal. We don't plan on taking any short trips off of long cliffs <laughs> or long trips off of short cliffs. I don't know how that goes. Any of the above. Any of the above. So um, please pray for protection for everyone here today and also for the people uh, that you'll hear mentioned as well. And with that said, Goel, welcome to the welcome, studio. Welcome to the show. Welcome Thanks to Utah. Thanks for having me. Um, so shall we jump right in? Yeah. Absolutely. So mm -hmm. basically, this is the presentation, the Hamlet case, allegations, history, and methodology. And at its core, this is the story of four little girls who were pretty horrifically abused. Rachel, Eliza, Catherine, and Miriam Hamlin, and their parents, Roselle Anderson Hamlin and David Lee Hamlin. David Lee Hamlin was a psychologist in Provo, Utah, educated at the University of Arizona, postgraduate work at Cornell Medical um, out of Port Chester, New York. Can you pull your microphone closer to you? Just make sure that, uh, here we go. And basically what the Hamlin girls tell a story of their narrative is the abuse began right after they were born. Um, and we're going to get into that. Um, so Rachel and Eliza Hamlin, these are the two eldest Hamlin daughters, and they filled out victims' statements one, two, and four with the Provo Police Department in the criminal case against their father, David Lee Hamlin, from 2012 to 2014. He was ultimately uh, charged with 18 separate counts of abuse. Their allegations had previously been determined to be truthful by the court in David Lee Hamlin's divorce. Specifically, the court found that David Lee Hamlin had sexually abused Rachel and Eliza Hamlin. I have that document with me. I obtained from a source. So what we're going to be reading from now is a direct source document. It's the finding of fact, conclusions of law, and order regarding custody, parent time, and related matter in the Hamlin divorce. So what the court found beginning uh, was that prior to the beginning of trial, Rachel and Eliza had each reached the age of majority. As of the date of the trial, Rachel was age 22 years of age, and as of June 1st, 2002, had, not, had married. Rachel voluntarily testified at the trial. As of the date of the trial, Eliza was 19 years of age. Eliza voluntarily testified at the trial. As of the date of the trial, Katie was age 16. She did not testify at the trial. Miriam was age 8. She did not testify at the trial. 
Petitioner seriously and over a long period of time sexually abused Rachel, which sexual abuse was established by evidence that was clear and convincing. Petitioner seriously and over a long period of time sexually abused Eliza, which sexual abuse was established by evidence that was clear and convincing. Among the evidence which the court finds to be clear and convincing with regard to the sexual abuse by the petitioner of Rachel and Eliza is the following. Rachel and Eliza are substantially different personalities who demonstrated different emotions and effect as they testified in open court regarding their memories of sexual abuse committed by their father. Rachel and Eliza never discussed the account of sexual abuse by their father with each other and each testified completely independent of the other. Rachel and Eliza each gave detailed testimony with regard to sexual abuse perpetrated upon them by their father which testimony was not only consistent with the testimony given by the other, but also consistent with the other statements which they had made outside of the court regarding this subject. The evidence presented did not persuade the court that either Rachel or Eliza had collaborated or conspired with the respondent, in this case, their mother, Roselle Hamlin, to create a story about sexual abuse to aid respondent in, the divorce, in her divorce case. Neither Rachel nor Eliza had the personality or the type of relationship with the respondent which would allow the respondent to dominate them or to succumb to her influence to the point where they would fabricate allegations of sexual abuse against the petitioner. It is understandable to the court that Rachel and or Eliza were angry with their father, but there is no credible evidence before the court which would lead the court to conclude that because of their anger, they would fabricate their allegations of abuse. The disclosure by Rachel and Eliza of sexual abuse perpetuated, perpetrated by the petitioner came forward through a delayed process, through fear and shame and the relationship they were placed in, including but not limited to the dual role with the petitioner as a patient in therapy and as a child with a parent because David Lee Hamlin was acting as their therapist and their parent. The testimony of Rachel and Eliza was supported by the evaluation, investigation, analysis, and expert opinions of Dr. Beale, who concluded that the evidence be considered mandated a conclusion that they had been sexually abused by the petitioner. Dr. Beale was well prepared, thorough, and thoughtful. Dr. Beale's report and testimony were based on extensive interviews and tests, and as a result of his extensive testing and extensive interviews, he was among the experts who considered the allegations made with regard to the petitioner in the best position to evaluate the credibility of the allegations made by Rachel and Eliza. So let's take a step back because that's a lot to digest for mm -hmm. our, our viewers and listeners. Just layman's terms, let's break that. Right. In layman's terms, an expert witness persuaded the court that the allegations against David Lee Hamlin of sexual abuse by his oldest two daughters Rachel and Eliza were true. Though his findings were the result of extensive interviews and testing in which he found them to be credible, credible enough to come and testify under oath in the divorce trial that they were telling the truth. Additionally, they also testified under oath, under penalty of perjury, as to those allegations, and the court believed them. So One of the things, go ahead. We finish with David. A family court found in 2003 that he had sexually abused his two eldest daughters 
Rachel and Eliza Hamlin. Despite this, he was not prosecuted for any crime at that time. Hamlin was also found to have administered peyote to his daughters while they were minors. That is a Schedule One. That is a Schedule One controlled substance. It is illegal to give it to anyone, let alone to a child. But he and was not prosecuted. And didn't he give it to daughter, someone, one of his kids under the age of five as well? Yes, Miriam Hamlin at the time was under the age of five. Okay, and and for our listeners right now, we're talking about you know, David David Lee Hamblin. <clears throat> Hang with us because. We will be dropping names of people that, that you that you know and in positions that are going to shock you. So hang tight and follow the story. Okay. So sometime between October 1997 and February 1998, Petitioner attended a ceremony of the Native American Church conducted by Oklavea Earthwalks Incorporated during the course of which the petitioner ingested peyote. Pursuant to... Utah Code Annotated, Section 58-37-42A3Q, peyote is a Class I controlled substance. After attending his first Native American ceremony, Petitioner told his wife and children about his experiences using peyote and encouraged them to attend. There's no way for him to encourage his children to attend. He was their father. They had to attend. The parties took Rachel, Eliza, and Mimi with them to at least one Native American church ceremony. Petitioner gave each one of them, including Mimi, peyote on at least one occasion. Eliza became violently ill as a result of using peyote, and Mimi became dizzy and hallucinated. So the parties would be both David and Roselle, taking taking their children to a Native American church ceremony and administering a Schedule I or a Class One um, controlled substance. They should have both been prosecuted, but they were not. Um, so following up on that, he administered a controlled substance to his daughters in violation of the law. You cannot give it to a consenting adult. The youngest daughter, Miriam, would have been younger than five years of age at the time. Despite this clearly illegal and criminal conduct, David Lee Hamlin was not prosecuted by the Utah County Attorney's Office or even arrested by the Provo Police. DCSF did nothing. And this was in the 90s? This is in the the 90s when the acts occurred. And additionally, the first time the abuse was reported was in 1999. In 2000, it was was reported again. All told, before the 2012 criminal investigation began, by my count, there were five separate occasions that he was reported to the Provo Police Department by Roselle Hamblin and his children. They also reported it to DCFS, and on five separate occasions, they, the law enforcement and social services did nothing. Again, these are not mere allegations. These are findings that were made by a court of law in Hamblin's divorce and custody trials, and I just showed you the primary document. So it's not my word against his. This is a court of law's findings. By and and, and what evidence. we're going to be getting into today is is things that are going to be, you're going to find this is not even, we're not even warming up. But clearly the most terrifying things you can imagine and nobody is getting, it is, it, this, these things are being hidden. And that's what he's laying, laying the case for is these people are getting away with it and, and they're being protected by the, by our, by the judicial system. Mm-hmm. 
So David Lee Hamlin also sexually abused his patients. <clears throat> As a licensed psychologist, David Lee Hamlin had sex with his patients and claimed to his patients that the sexual activity was therapeutic. Two adult female patients who had been abused by David Lee Hamlin testified against him during his divorce. While the Utah Division of Occupational and Professional Licensing stripped Hamlin of his license, they did not investigate whether or not he had sex with his minor patients. On or about October 20, 2000, Petitioner and the Division of Occupational and Professional Licensing for the state of Utah, hereafter, here and after Doppel, entered into a stipulation and order, here and after the agreement, which agreement was the result of an investigation conducted on behalf of Doppel by D. Thorl, an employee of Doppel. In the agreement, Petitioner specifically acknowledged inter alia that the following conduct relevant to a determination by this court of whether the petitioner should have the right to exercise parent time with his minor children. David Lee Hamblin admits he has had intimate relationships with several patients during clinical therapy sessions and claimed to some of these patients that the intimacy was therapeutic to them. Paragraph 8 of the agreement. David Lee Hamblin admitted in his, his conduct constituted unprofessional conduct prohibited by law and agreed that an order could be entered by Doppel revoking his license to practice as a psychologist in the state of Utah. David Lee Hamlin agreed that he would not apply for a license for licensure for five years and that if he ever reapplied, Doppel's entire investigation file would be available to evaluate his character and abilities to safely practice as a psychologist in the state of Utah. Among the patients with whom Petitioner had sexual relations with during his therapy sessions, were two adult female patients who testified at trial. Each had suffered significant emotional trauma as a result of their experiences with the petitioner and petitioner never contacted them to apologize for his actions. So what you have here is by 1999 and 2000, it is known that David Lee Hamlin as a psychologist is having sex with his patients and trying to convince them that it's part of their therapy. He's stripped of his license, but he's not charged with any crime. So at the time when his daughters are walking into the Provo Police Department in 2000, it's known that he's had sex with his patients, and he's trying to convince those patients that the sex is part of their therapy. Despite this, the Provo Police Department and the Utah County Attorney's Office declined to investigate further or prosecute him. There is more. Rachel, Eliza, and Katie Hamlin alleged that their father, David Lee Hamlin, had moved a patient named Angela Fenton into the family's home in Provo. Angela Fenton was a dissociative identity disorder patient with multiple personalities, one of whom was a young boy named CJ. David Lee Hamlin had sex with Angela Fenton and involved Rachel in therapy sessions with Fenton. He represented to Rachel and to others that she was his apprentice, even though she was a child with no psychological training whatsoever. Rachel Hamblin alleged that she was abused by her father and Angela Fenton. This is from the divorce proceedings. During the course of the marriage, a female patient, here and after referred to as the patient, as part of her therapy came to live in the family home with the parties and their minor children. While the patient was living with the petitioner and his family in their home in Provo, Utah, petitioner was performing therapy on the patient who was suffering from severe mental disorders including but not limited to multiple personality disorder. While the patient was living with Petitioner and his family in their home in Provo, Utah, 
Petitioner involved Rachel, who was a minor at the time, in therapy sessions with the patient. Petitioner neglected his wife and children in order to devote time to the patient and ultimately had sexual contact with the patient while she was still residing in his home. The above identified confusing mixture of multiple religious and psychological theories and practices created an environment which has caused extreme mental and emotional damage and instability in the lives of Rachel, Eliza, and Katie. Angela Fenton. This is Angela Fenton of Apply Synergies, where she serves as the Human Resources Director for her former bishop and stake president, Conrad Godfredson. According to Rachel Hamblin, Angela Fenton is a member of a Church of Satan family from Alpine, Utah. Okay, so let, this might be a good time to, because we haven't even brought this up. Um, <clears throat> a lot of what we're going to be discussing today is um, the Church of Satan. Well, the LDS Church of Satan. So think of it as a religion within the religion. Your average Latter-day Saint is not going to be privy to this. Um, they're going to go to sacrament meetings, Sunday school or elders quorum, or Relief Society, and never be exposed to this. They're never going to be recruited into this group. They would be perfectly oblivious to it, unless, and of course, a member of this group abused one of their children or one of their relatives. But culturally, Latter-day Saints handle things in-house. We go to our bishops. Our bishops may refer to a stake president or a high council, but it is not often referred to law enforcement for an outside investigation. If you were to dial the sexual abuse hotline for the Latter-day Saints, that hotline is controlled by Kurt McConkey, the same law firm that the church retains to handle sexual abuse cases when it is sued. So everything is handled in-house. It's complete vertical integration. Right. So, so when we talk about, so this is, as we get into the LDS Church of Satan, it is, it is, is a very clear, is important distinction. To distinction that is not the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It is a group that has infiltrated the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints, and we're going to continue to get into Absolutely this. not. What I would say to people is one of the encouraging things that, to me over the time that I've looked into this case is that there are a lot of what I now call fed-up Mormons and who want to root this out. And as one of them put it to me, at this point you can throw a rock in any direction and hit someone who's either been a victim of this abuse or who is related to someone who's been a victim of this type of abuse. Like, yeah. there's just too many allegations for this to be completely false. So there are good Latter-day Saints who want to root this out of the church because it doesn't belong in God's restored well, and, and church. Well, and it's not just in the church. It's outside of the church, too. It's, it's, it is an organization here in Utah, um, and not just Utah, in New York and Arizona, and uh, who... It, uh, well, let's let's let you explain. I'll let you keep going. Yeah. So there let's are a variety going. of of different nonprofit organizations who are dedicated to rooting this out. Yeah, this, Some, this is politicians. This is not just church. This is politicians. This is government. This is the, these guys are have infiltrated uh, government uh, attorney uh, attorneys judges. I mean, this is a group of people that basically going, that basically rule the state of Utah. As we're going to show you, like this goes pretty deep. So even if the individuals named in this are not members of the LDS Church of Satan, they are related to people who allegedly are. And they would have a vested interest in protecting their family name and reputation and suppressing these allegations. 
So Angela Fenton began as a client of Redacted. This is from Rachel Lee Hamlin's uh, victim statement. Uh, Angela Fenton began as a client of David's and then moved in with us. Uh, we had most experience this is with her between 1995 and 1998. I believe she was in her mid to late 30s. She was overweight but very strong and had a very short haircut. Dave and Roselle made fun of her behind her back for being ugly or homely. She hated her family, especially her mom, and did not want to live with them in Alpine. She said so herself many times, although she had a huge wing of the house to herself. Her family was very wealthy. David said we were not to call her Angela in general because, he said, Angela did not want to come out anymore. I did meet Angela many times over this period, but she preferred to be called CJ most of the time. And that was the disassociation she had with a small boy being one of those personalities. Yeah, CJ was a young boy that was one of her alternate personalities. David said that Angela, or Angie as he also called her, was hiding from her life and the pain. He said that to the psychology world, Angela had severe multiple personality disorder and had many, many parts. That's what he would call the personalities. David often talked about how much he loved working with Angela, saying she was so artfully fragmented. He would make list and list of all the parts he would find and then information about each of them. Angela's family were Church of State members, she and David said, and she had been raised experiencing ceremonies, torture, etc., but something went wrong, we were told, and she had fallen into severe mental pieces. David believed that he could fix her and help her achieve wholeness as a devoted follower of Lucifer. I believe Angela's parents were paying David for this work, even though he acted and spoke around her as if he hated them as much as she did. An important distinction to make here is that at the time, um, Angela Fenton's biological father had, had been deceased for a good bit of time. I believe he died in 1988, if I'm recalling the obituary date right, but her mother did live in Alpine. That is corroborated. A good bit of her family lived in Alpine. They had moved there from California. So Angela Fenton. Rachel Hamblin detailed being forced to provide oral sex to Angela Fenton and being forced to participate in her father's therapy with Fenton. As a minor child. As a minor child. The therapy was designed to enable David Lee Hamblin and his accomplices to access Angela Fenton's deceased abuser within this Church of Satan. Conrad Godfordson, Angela Fenton's employer, and former state president and bishop was allegedly a direct participant in the therapy and the abuse, according to Rachel Hamblin. Date, 1996 to 1997, night location, uh, Provo House. Uncle Con, Conrad Gottfriedson, came over after dinner to work with CJ. This was... Angela. Her, and this, was this is Angela her, her state president? This is her state president or bishop. employer. Okay. Not so, employer yet, or was it also her employer? Not, not her time, employer not at this time. Okay. He would go on to become her employer to apply okay. synergies, uh, the company that he founded. Okay. So David sat on the couch with CJ and started blessing them while Khan set up his camera and tripod. I was to stay behind the camera until they needed me. Meaning Rachel. They, huh? Rachel is the I. Yeah. Okay. David and Khan had previously discovered that C.J. had been abused for a long period of his childhood by a certain satanic worshiper who was very high up and powerful. 
He had the title of master, which is something that both David and Khan aspired to. This man had since died, I was told, but they could still speak to him through CJ. They started calling out different parts of CJ who had been abused by the master. CJ's voice, facial expression, and behavior would change with each one. Tara, a little girl that had came out fairly often, came out and was very timid and shy. Another older one came out and started fighting and yelling, trying to get away. David and Khan tried to hold her down, but were struggling. Angela Fenton did not really look it, but she could be incredibly strong at times, like the Hulk, David Khan joked. They were sliding off the couch, trying to hold her and hold her, and David yelled out angrily for me to come help them. I scrambled over to help hold her legs down as he instructed, and she kicked me hard in the ribs. Khan and David put their arms to the square, consistent with a priesthood blessing or ritual work, held them up with the elbow bent and the fingers extended upward, and cut off this part and sent it to the outer darkness, Lucifer's kingdom. They did it a few times with more elaborate language, and she finally calmed down. Then they put their hands on CJ's head and called forth a legion of Lucifer spirits. That, they said, also resided in Angela to talk with them. CJ's face contorted again, and he spoke to Redacted and Khan, who demanded that they speak to the highest officers and leader. Working until the early hours of the morning, five hours or so, David and Khan sat on either side of CJ, holding him down and questioning these officers and leaders. David wrote excitedly on his yellow notepad, and sometimes Khan took notes for him. David and Khan often talked about how much they loved to speak to these high-ranking spirits, trying to get doctrinal CS information and secrets out of them, and to learn the ways to become even more powerful in their satanic priesthood. For me, it was like living in a nightmare, or a horror movie to be present. Each time a new spirit came out, they would demand something before they would tell David and Khan their mysteries of God, or Lucifer. Each spirit would look at me hungrily and generally require one of three things. That I do a sexual act on the spirit, Angela's body. The spirit do a sexual act, usually violent, on me. Or the spirit physically beat and attack me. It was similar to the gathering and other ceremonies where spirits make trades. This night, I was beaten several times by CJ. After I was attacked, David and Khan would give me healing blessings where I had been, where I had to do a sexual act with them as part of the blessing. I was made to give CJ, as a spirit, oral sex several times, put my fingers in her vagina and anus, rub and lick her anus, act like a dog while she humped me, rubbed herself on me from behind, fondle her breast several times and dance seductively for she redacted and con or david and con david and con got aroused watching this and lucifer spirits and angela encouraged them to rape and sodomize me angela is the spirit would urge them david raped me vaginally at least twice con raped me one time and sodomized me one time i also gave both of them oral sex once con changed the tapes and the video camera several times during the night frequency sexual and violent experiences like this would CJ happened daily, often multiple times a day and night when I was kept out of school as David's apprentice. Experiences occurred in Provo, Spring City, Alpine, Wildwood, other places in Utah, on camping trips, etc. Many people were interested in helping or working with CJ, including family, friends, Church of Satan members, and clients of my father, 
etc. So that, I, that's a lot to unpack and, and pretty heavy for some of our listeners and obviously very graphic. Um, there is just something I want to call out because you've kind of gone back and forth in noting the redacted, both redacted and, and David. Is there a distinction in these documents where you're able to supplement a name? Uh, as a yeah, context is everything. So obviously the only therapist who would have been present in the Provo home was David Lee Hamlet. Um, he operated a home office um, in his basement. Um, you know that it's absolutely irregular for a therapist to move a patient into their personal residence. That is a breach of professional ethics. It goes against every bit of good practices for a mental health professional to do that. On top of that, there is no valid professional reason for him to incorporate his minor child into that therapy, especially not if it involves keeping her out of school. So we know factually that she was his patient. That's not in question. Not we know factually that she was living with him. And, the, and what you were read was the victim statement one of the, from uh, Rachel. Rachel. Which is one of several, which is one of several different victim statements, which is his daughter. So this yeah. is his daughter saying this is what she experienced. Yeah. <clears throat> and one of several witnesses. Yeah, so okay, you've got Eliza and you've got Katie who can also corroborate this because they were present and they were aware of it. Okay. Um, so all three girls agree on this point. Um, and I know it's hard to hear for people. I mean, it's, it's extremely extremely difficult to, to listen it's 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 dark um we're, we're not interested in 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 the in in the uh i don't know the outlandishness of this but the our, our interest is if this if these things are true how can we let these animals get away with this at the end of the day the only relevant factor here is whether or not david lee hamlin committed a crime now we know he committed a crime well, and if these other people, we know he molested and if these daughters. other people are, are associated with it, Conrad, Arthur, Gottfriedson, there needs to be justice for these so, people. If, if they really were involved with this. Yes. And so Conrad, Arthur, Gottfriedson also referred another individual who was abused by David Lee Hamlin as a therapist, Brett Bluth. Brett Bluth was a returning missionary. Right. I'm sure a lot of our, I'm sure yeah. a lot of people have heard about this. this people is have heard about that because it's front and center in the current coverage. Um, but he was the Alpine West uh, stake president in 2003 to 2013. Previously, he was a bishop. Based on our research, we believe that it was from 1994 to like 1999, he was a bishop, and then he was called to be a stake president. He referred both Angela Fenton and returning missionary Brett Bluth to David Lee Hamlin. Bluth's re report to Doppel was the trigger for the investigation that led to Hamlin losing his license as a therapist. What Brett Bluth realized in talking to other patients of David Lee Hamlin was that he was running the same game on them that he was running on Brett Bluth, trying to convince them that they had revealed satanic ritual abuse in their childhoods while under hypnotherapy. Um, Brett Bluth strenuously denied ever being under hypnosis for real. He said that he was aware the entire time of what was going on, and he disputed David Hamlin and said, I did not tell you that I was ritually abused as a child. And David Lee Hamlin told him that if you don't acquiesce to this, you will continue to struggle with homosexuality. This culminated in David Lee Hamlin coming up with the idea that 
Brett Bluth should perform oral sex on him because the semen of a righteous man could drive out the semen of the wicked man who had abused him and therefore caused his homosexuality. So a homosexual act to cure yourself of homosexuality, basically. That's how warped it was. And this was all in the news, what was it, a couple of years yeah. ago? It all it was, came out? Yeah, last year it came out. Um, so Conrad Arthur Godfredson allegedly participated in the abuse of the Hamlin daughters. He allegedly filmed the abuse of the Hamlin daughters. So and he, is he still the president of that company? Yeah, he's still with Apply Synergies. He's I think what's hard is you look at this guy, and to me I see a nice guy. That's the thing you understand. Like in 22 years of investigating very evil people, they don't look evil. Like we have kind of a cartoon vision of what evil is in the wider culture that it has, you know, a forked tongue and horns and a tail, and it doesn't have that. It looks normal. Yeah. It looks like an average person. Pedophiles would not be successful and have 150 to 185 victims over the course of their lifetimes if they look like pedophiles. Like they have to blend in, and they're very good at blending in. So he is currently Angela Fenton's employer at Apply Synergies. She has since relocated to Hawaii, and she apparently works remotely for Apply Synergies. He testified in Hamlin's divorce proceedings. Oh, he did? Yes. Okay. Are we going to see that? Yeah. All so right. David Lee Hamlin's patient abuse is confirmed by both Doppel's investigation of Hamlin's own admissions, as well as the court in Hamlin's divorce, to say nothing of the corroborating witness statements or victim statements of his daughters. These are not allegations. David Lee Hamlin admitted to sexually abusing his patients as a therapist, yet he was never prosecuted. Doppel, DCFS, Provo Police, and the Utah County Attorney's Office apparently never followed up to interview Hamlin's underage patients in his therapy practice to see if they had been abused because it was known at the time that he treated children as a therapist. In fact, one of those children is currently one of the adults alleging that Hamlin abused him during ther therapy sessions in one of the current criminal cases out of American Fork. It's a boy that Hamlin was a therapist for. He's now an adult, and he's come forward to allege that David Lee Hamlin abused him while Hamlin was his therapist. This could have been identified in 1999-2000 had Doppel simply investigated and followed up with all of David Lee Hamlin's patients and their parents, if they were still minors. So I think from what you've been saying, one of the, one of the people might say, well, why did Utah County Attorney's Office you know, follow up, or why was there no, if, if all this stuff was known, why was there no uh, justice? No, is it, why, is there no, why did no one go after it? And I think one of the things you're going to talk about is that, uh, and I think everyone probably heard it in the news last year about David Levitt. And apparently David Levitt, who is the Utah County attorney, um, apparently is, is involved in this. I think you're probably getting, going to get into that, which is why there's this yeah. one group of power who protects each other at all costs, which is exactly what secret combinations are, which is funny because if there's one state that should be aware of what secret combinations are, it should be Utah. Yes. Ironically, and, and if there's one state, their secret combinations apparently are th thriving, it is Utah. The one spot they shouldn't be. Allegedly, secret combinations are thriving. So to recap it, by 2003, it's known and on the record that David Lee Hamlin had sexually abused multiple patients in his therapy practice. It was known that he had moved one of those patients, Angela Fenton, to his home in Provo, and he used his daughter Rachel during therapy sessions with Fenton. 
It was known and on the record that David Lee Hamlin had sexually abused two of his daughters and had administered peyote to his children. He was not arrested or prosecuted for any of this. The other thing is he moved a 30-year-old woman with multiple personality disorder into his home in Provo, and his home is surrounded by other homes. It's in a neighborhood of other alleged CS members. It's not like he was hiding or he was discreet about what he was doing. So do a lot of these uh, these uh, CS members live in, in communities together? They go to the same church together? Does that, does that, do they, One is of the that central the way they... allegations in the victim statements was that CS members select places to live based on whether or not there is an existing CS presence in that neighborhood because that way they can practice their ordinances. It's usually home ordinances without any interference by the neighbors because the neighbors, even if they do notice something, they're doing the same thing. So when we did a property records analysis, myself and Isaiah, um, we did property records analysis of Utah County property records for the people named in the Hamlin victim statements. And what we found was they continually lived in the same clustered areas in certain neighborhoods down like Little Rock Drive and whatnot, and they still do. And they were right across the street from each other, or they were in the same condominium complexes. They bought up all of the property. They only transferred, they only sell property to other members of the group. They didn't sell outside of the group. That was a pattern that appeared over and over and over again when we analyzed the property records in Utah County, San Pete, and elsewhere. And so that's an explanation for how they got away with it for so long because they were the neighborhood. Right. <clears throat> um, and, and that's and exactly. The judge, and the judge and jury. Yeah, that's exactly the what the Hamlin daughters alleged. They said that that was the case, and we found corroborative evidence to substantiate that. That's one of the things that's very difficult here. Victims lie, they're, not, they're human. The issue is, I've been on this for over a year, and I have not found a single lie, exaggeration, embellishment at all on the part of these girls. If, if I did find it, I would advertise it. But everything they have said, the evidence that I've looked at corroborates it and proves it. And so it's, it's like, okay, they're not, they're not embellishing, they're not exaggerating, they're not telling a lie. It, you, they, they have credibility. So why David Lee Hamlin was not prosecuted in 2003? And I think these are the questions that uh, people should be asking themselves because I, I think I, there's no question we're going to come under fire on this. All we're doing is reading court documents and statements from these girls. That's all we're doing is reading these statements and putting it out there. It, this is not, we're not on trial here. This is Utah that's on trial. And why is it so important for our viewers to know something so heavy and so graphic? Because you, if, if, if obviously, if, if this is true and you've got judges and attorneys and, and law enforcement protect, and protecting these people, the only way justice is going to come is from we the people. It's from, it's from the, the masses of people waking up, is sharing this content with their friends and someone with, with courage st standing up and, and helping take this. Well, I mean, you cannot defeat an enemy you do not know. I think the first step to recovery is admitting that you have a problem. And these allegations are not new. Like these allegations, like they blew up first in the so-called satanic panic in the 80s. 
and they were dismissed and they were swept under the rug and you know but they kept coming it never stopped it just wasn't dealt with I mean, how many kids have been abused since then because we, we decided because in, we decided we'd rather not look at that ugly uh, dragon Let's the pretend worst the dragon doesn't is, exist. And meanwhile, the dragon's gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. The worst part of it is it's not how many kids were abused. It's like thousands of kids were obviously abused in this. The worst part is statistically, you know, that 37% of the victims of childhood sexual abuse, according to the academic literature, will grow up to become adult perpetrators. And within the Church of Satan, that was what this abuse was designed to do. It was designed to dissociate children and turn them into adults who would perpetuate this abuse or perpetrate this abuse going forward as adults on their own children. And so according to Rachel Hamlin and her sisters, David Lee Hamlin was actually excommunicated from the LDS Church of Satan in 1999. His father-in-law at the, at the excommunication excoriated him for narcissism, for mixing the Church of Satan's teachings with Hamlin's newfound interest in Indian religion and for promoting himself at the expense of the group. The CS Council decreed that there would be a divorce and the divorce proceedings would be stage managed. There would be no criminal charges brought against David Lee Hamblin. That is exactly what happened. Is, is part of, one of the things I had heard, and you can tell me if this is correct, it was that uh, David Hamblin and some of his uh, people in his group, I'm not sure how it's, his organization, were a little too loose and they weren't blending in and they were not... Um, they were, they were not. They were drawing. They were not hiding. They were not hiding yeah. what they were doing very well, and they were not being, I guess, good wolves in sheep's clothing, being under the radar, looking like the a proper LDS person. Is that is there true? Is that was that is absolutely there? true? So there's two councils here, in these victim statements. One is in Provo, and it's run by men like Richard Lloyd Anderson, the girl's grandfather. Um, and it's very strict and by the book. They do things by the letter of the law. David Lee Hamlin bought a second home in Spring City, and what he said to his children, according to the victim statements, was, I, I do things by the spirit of the law. And what he started to do was he started to mix his LDS Church of Satan teachings with the Indian teachings of James Warren Flaming Eagle Mooney, the, father of that native, or the founder of that Native American church that used peyote. Um, and at first, Provo isn't really aware of what's going on down in Spring City. Um, but when they become aware of it, they become aware of it because David Lee Hamlin is doing things like getting busted for peyote. Yeah, he, he, he became reckless. Extremely reckless. Which is why they had to the court documents, him. what was interesting is they tried to represent it as his interaction with the Native American church began much later like in the late 90s. He was actually familiar with James Warren Flaming Eagle Mooney in the early to mid-90s, like 1993, 1994, because he and Joe Binion were going out to Gunnison State Prison, where James Mooney was first like kind of a chaplain holding sweat lodge ceremonies for the inmates, and then he got his peace officer's license, and he became a corrections officer at Gunnison State Prison. And so Joe Binion and David Lee Hamlin met him there, according to the victim statements. So we're going to go right now into the high council ceremony that excommunicated David Lee Hamlin in 1999. It was evening 
when David, when uh, Rosie told me that we would be going before uh, Richard Lloyd Anderson's high council that night, I tried to ask her questions about it, but she would only say that Aunt Suki and Uncle Craig would be there, as well as many friends and neighbors, and that uh, Rosie and David were driving separately. Rosie told me I was to wear my maroon and lace, uh, black lace dress, but no underwear. She ordered us to shower and prepare our bodies to participate in whatever was coming. We all rode in the car, and she made us wear blindfolds. We drove for a little while and parked. People helped us get out of the car, and we walked a ways, and then we were led downstairs before we got into the room. Then we were ordered to take off the blindfolds. The room looked like a basement room, maybe a private home or a church. David was already there, and Richard was at a long table in his role as the peacemaker. The other elders were there at the table wearing graduation robes or dark robes slash cloaks and masks. Other people's dress in robes and masks were seated all around the room as well. Can we pause for a second? It always seems like there's, there's God's order and the way he does things, and then there's Satan's counterfeit. God's priesthood, Satan's priesthood. God's... Um, ordinances and satan's ordinances and to me this you know if it's it's i i see the uh counter of this incredible especially as you continue to go here and and it is dark as much as light is light dark is just as dark yeah if you studied the occult in particular most satanist groups like what they thrive on is to invert like christian rights or ordinances truth and they're going to invert them and turn, turn them on their head there's no different here. I mean, basically, this high council proceeding is like a church court, but for the LDS Church of Satan. So Richard or David was there already, and Richard was at a long table in his role as a peacemaker. Richard didn't have a mask on. They opened the meeting with prayer and acknowledged every council member by their title. By the way, if you have kids, this is a good time to move them out of the room. Yeah. I think the beginning of the show was the good yeah. time yes. to move them out. <laughs> We're a little late on that. Disclaimer again, though, on this part. Yeah, you're going to be investing some serious money in therapy. Um, And then David was brought forward. Richard spoke harshly to David for a long time about the consequences of his reckless behavior, his narcissism and putting himself above the leadership of the church, Church of Satan, and for endangering the Lord's, Lucifer's work on the earth. Richard said that the council had decided that David was to take the fall. The custody trial would move forward and... Eliza and I would be permitted to speak about some molestation by him. Eliza and I would be permitted to speak about some molestation by him. No mention of Rosie or any others would be permitted. He said all participants in the trial would be approved by the council and it would never go to a criminal trial. Then he reprimanded Rosie, reprimanded Rosie for not bringing David's actions to the council and for going along with him. The council then voted to revoke David's position as paterfamilias over Rosie and our family and that authority was transferred to Richard. David's face was set and grim. Then Richard called me up and said he was reminding me that as the peacemaker, it was my sworn duty to follow and enforce the council's commands among the family. They said if I did anything more or different than what had been decided, and explained that I would be violating my covenants, my birthright would be revoked, or my title role as a peacemaker, and I would be cut off eternally from my bloodline, and I would be turned over to the punisher, Gordon Bowen. You're going to hear a lot about Gordon Bowen, and if you do not know who he is... We'll put a pin in it. Yeah, put a pin in that. You will know who he is. Yeah, 
He said there would be no restrictions on what the Punisher did to me, and they could easily cover up my murder. He said similar things to Eliza, and he spoke to Katie, too. So you're hearing a lot of words that we haven't brought up, and I know a lot of this is new just to begin with, but we've mentioned things like peacemakers and punishers. So those are roles within the LDS Church of Satan. Um, David David Levitt was the conspirator. His task was to... And this is attorney... This is attorney David David Levitt, who is the former Utah County attorney and the former Juab County attorney. His job was to attack anybody who threatened the CS's interest. So we had to repeat oaths and demonstrate our commitment to Satan and his church. We were ordered to stand nude in a circle and rub the genitals of the person next to us, and everyone had to take turns giving Richard oral sex. He made a point to ejaculate on my sister, and I was sure that David was going to punch him. Richard told him to drink the semen, and he refused. Rosie started licking it off of Richard instead. Then people around the room came over and made... Eliza and I do physical and sexual things. I was forced to give oral sex to a man. Some people's masks came off in the orgy, and I saw Joy Lundberg and Gary Hansen. When it was over, we were told to dress and put our blindfolds on for our trip home. Note, I came a little too close in some of my other interviews during the trial. At least once, I had mentioned David doing hand motions over my face, hoping that someone outside would pick that up and investigate it more. On the stand, I was able to get away with saying truthfully that the abuse happened daily, although I was grilled by David's attorney. Rosie was really mad because it made it look highly improbable that she had never seen these daily episodes of abuse. So, Roselle Hamlin did not hold employment outside of the home. She was a homemaker. She was present in the home while these daily episodes of abuse were going home. And yet, nobody in the court... And, and nobody in law enforcement thought to ask how in the world she managed over all of these years to see nothing. Um, so why David Lee Hamlin was not prosecuted in 2003, corroboration. Eliza Hamlin tells the same story as her sister about the 1999 High Council meeting that excommunicated her father, David Lee Hamlin. She names John Bunting as one of the men on the High Council that excommunicated David Lee Hamlin. So we're going to give you a little more detail about John Bunting in a minute that's relevant um, that Isaiah uncovered uh, because it ties into the existing power structure of the church. But for now, we're going to stick with Eliza's victim statement. So this is the sisters. This, so this is, is the, the second, second oldest. The second statement about yeah, this. Second oldest child of David and Roselle Hamlet. I attended a high council meeting with, with Rachel We were blindfolded and driven a short distance when we were led into a basement and told to wait until the council was ready. At that point, we were allowed to take our blindfolds off. When we entered the room, there were about 12 men in black hoods and robes sitting. sitting. One of them was Richard. The council members were sitting at the head of the room. The audience's seats were facing them in the back of the room. Everyone either had a hood, mask, or veil covering his or her face. Um... Grandparents, family, including Richard, Karma, Suki, and Craig Christensen, were the only people with bare faces. The council started out by reprimanding David for failing in his responsibilities as a paterfamilias and for losing control of his wife and children. He had also failed in the proper teaching of the gospel to his children, and it contaminated the pure gospel with Native American theology. They told him that he had gotten out of hand and sloppy in his observance of the gospel, 
and that he had built up a kingdom unto himself without the permission or approval of the council. His wife and children would be reassigned to Richard as the new paterfamilias. Rosie was reprimanded for her behavior in the community, and both Rosie and David were told that they were not publicly devout enough in the LDS church. There you go. Of Satan. No. No, 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 of the LDS Church. That of the was, Latter Day Saints. That was what one of the conditions: is you have to be hidden, you have to you be have to not look seen. like a faithful Latter Day Saint. That's because you're you have dual membership and you're blending in. One of the big things that they really this is how they stay hidden. This is one of the things that they really wanted to do was to profane the sacred and to blaspheme Heavenly Father by maintaining dual membership in these organizations. The reason she was reprimanded for her behavior is because during the divorce, before it was even finalized, she was dating other men publicly. Um, she was going out on dates with men like James Arrington, who's a famous playwright within the LDS. And as that's not in keeping with what you would expect a faithful endowed member of the LDS to do. Even if they're going through a divorce, they don't get to date until after the divorce is finalized, that's adultery. They certainly don't get to have sex until they're married because that's a violation of the law of chastity. So Rosie was told that she would now be placed in a new home under the watchful eye of her parents, neighbors, and the council. She was admonished to be submissive and humble towards her parents in public and in private and to continue with the teachings of the unadulterated gospel. She was told that if she performed her duties well, her needs would be provided for. My sisters and I were reprimanded for being disobedient, unruly, and not listening to the wise counsel of our elders. For these reasons, we would also be published or punished. We were told that our futures would be protected if we performed our duties well with humility and gratitude. Then they told us that Rosie and David would get a divorce and that Rachel and I would be allowed to testify against David for certain transgressions. They said they had a plan to use certain people in the community to ensure the council's plan would be carried out. We would be advised about what language to use and which acts we could describe. Like Rachel was strictly warned that disobedience to the council's judgment would result in loss of position within the kingdom and the loss of our material possessions. If we performed our duties well, we would be provided a good life and many opportunities. At this point, the council ruled on our punishment, which was carried out immediately. Richard and Rosie Richard and Rosie joined Rachel in a circle. Our whole family was forced to undress and participate in a covenant-making sexual act where we submitted ourselves to Richard's will. After that, there was an orgy where my sisters and I were raped by many of the people there who were still masked. The only person whose face I did see was John Bunting from the LDS ward whose mask fell off during the orgy. He was one of the men on the council. So I think there's a lot to unpack here because there's a lot of graphic content in this, but I think a lot of people are just wondering why, why, why all of this is going, this is a punishment of course, for being sloppy and, and it needed to be like a ritual type thing. Well, it's humiliation of because David Lee Hamlin has been stripped of his role as the paterfamilias. One of the that? things that they invoke is the wisdom of parents. That's the parents know best for their children, and especially fathers, as the paterfamilias, know what's best for their family. So fathers have absolute authority in their families. You have to comply with what they say because they're your elder, 
you're your husband. They know what's best for you. And no matter what it is that they suggest, they have absolute power and domination over you. So stripping David Lee Hamlin of that role and transferring it to his father-in-law, Richard Lloyd Anderson, and making him watch while he raped David Lee Hamlin's daughters um, and ejaculated on them and then telling him, according to Rachel, lick it up and swallow it. That's the ultimate form of humiliation for David Lee Hamlin. That's why. It's also asserting dominance and establishing dominance for his daughters that now you answer to your grandfather. But we're dealing with someone who is so deviant that embarrassment, shame, all of those things, why wouldn't they be sexual perversions of themselves? How is the form of embarrassment here any different than the cruelty and abuse that they suffer? Why, in other words, why wouldn't that type of perversion be something that would be appealing to him? I could probably throw something in here, and I think it comes to what you said earlier. It's about power. <clears throat> One is when he's doing it, he's in power. When what they're doing is is making them him subservient to them. Domi they're dominating him. They're okay. putting him in the places like an animal. Like One of the reasons that he broke away and went down to Spring City to form a competing council is because he was chafing under the authority and oversight of his father-in-law, Richard Lloyd Anderson. They did, they did not like each other. So he wanted to go down to Spring City and work with Joe Binion away from the eyes of the people in Provo. And that way he could introduce his own particular doctrine, which was a mixture of the CS doctrine and also Native American theology. This was about dominance and control from start to finish. And he, he would, did not want to wait until his time came when Richard Lloyd Anderson and the old guard died out. He wanted to exert total dominance in the present. So as much as this is sexual in nature, it's really not even about the sexual acts. It's more about the power and uh, the control that you have over. Rape never is about sex or sexual pleasure. It is about power and it is about asserting dominance over other people. It's about overriding their consent and establishing that your will is sufficient to override their consent. They don't have bodily autonomy. They can't say no to you because you can physically dominate them and force them to do this. In the case of the CS, it's not about sex in the typical sense. You know, sure, surely they enjoy it from a power standpoint, and also the women who are forcing their daughters and sons to do it, they get off on it. But ultimately, they also have the purpose of training their children to become the types of adults who will perpetrate this abuse on their grandchildren and great-grandchildren to come. That, you know, this is about perpetrating the abuse further and also perpetuating the group into the future. I think it's just hard for most sane people to get their minds around. That's what it comes down to. It's just a sane person has a hard time wrapping their heads around this, which is why there'll be a lot of cognitive dissidents and why a lot of people will have a very hard time with this. People are going to have a hard time with this. It's The average person is going to be upset that we're doing this and exposing it just because it's it's... It's hard. It's heavy. It's it's easier to run away from it to just put it in a corner and say it's and 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 not take responsibility because there is a weight of responsibility that comes with this because when you take this when you take this information and and absorb it you leave neutral ground you can no longer say you're ignorant to the evil now you know the evil is there and you have a responsibility to either do something without the evil or close your eyes and allow the dragon to grow that's why people are, are would rather most people would rather deny this 
push it away because they don't want the responsibility that comes with it. Same thing with principles of freedom. It's, well, the it issue comes with is, the is like Latter-day Saints don't understand, I think, culturally, because we are taught to be so deferential to authority, we assume that authority will do it. We assume that God's anointed leaders or the law deal with this or the, or the, the legal law. system will deal yeah. with it. And the reality of it is we each have obligations. We swear covenants that we will not look away from evil, but that we will confront it. And what I would say to anybody out there watching who's having a hard time with this, it's your job believe, yeah. as a Latter-day Saint, as a it's member a job of the as anybody, church. Not even a member of the church. It is a job as a, as a human being. This well, is not about the church. This is about this is about human beings who know this type of stuff's going on. These girls' statements, if these if these things are true, I don't care what religion you are. You have a resp- God-given responsibility to stand for truth, stand for right, and to protect. Katie Hamlin's victim statement tells the same story. She and her sisters were brought in before the CS Council, and they witnessed their father's excommunication. The council instructed them and their parents on how to proceed with the divorce and what would be permitted in the divorce. An orgy followed. Katie Hamlin named Joy and Gary Lundberg, Gary and Bonnie Hudson, Anson and John Bunting as well. So we've got two children who name John Bunting. Um, We've got corroboration there. Now who is John Allen Bunting? He is John Allen Bunting of the Provo, Utah Edgemont Stake. He was the stake president from May uh, 21st, 2016 onward. He succeeded Lowell James Robeson, uh, previously of the Edgemont 7th Ward. Robeson was released from a stake presidency by Merrill J. Bateman after a second individual came forward to accuse Robeson of sexual abuse. The first individual was Robeson's cousin, Christopher Swallow, who accused him in 1995 of abuse. Swallow reported Robeson and Earl C. Tingey and warned Tingey that Robeson was a sexual predator, and the church had called him as a mission president of the Mexico Leon mission. The church didn't remove him from the calling. They let him go. After Swallow appears in Mormon stories, um, how long ago was it? 2017. Lowell Robeson killed himself 63 days later. So to recap, an alleged sexual predator, Lowell Robeson, Robeson, was replaced as a stake president in Provo Edgemont, Utah Stake, by John Allen Bunting, who was himself accused of being present and participating in an orgy where the Hamlin children were raped, and where he raped at least one of those children himself. Um, so when we talk about John Allen Bunting, he's a former stake president, Provo Edgemont Stake. He's the managing director of Facet Precision Tool GmbH. He's the former CEO of Precor. He's an alleged member of the High Council for the Church of Satan in Provo and he allegedly orally sodomized Katie Hamblin in 1999 at the CS High Council excommunication of her father, David Lee Hamblin. Now, to further highlight the significance of family and business connections, I'd like to detail a little more on alleged CS High Council member John A. Bunting. Professionally, in 1979, he joined founders Dr. Bill J. Pope and Louis Pope, a father and son partnership at their newly formed research and development company, U.S. Synthetic. Now, U.S. Synthetic specialization was drilling industry technology, and they went on to become a huge player in the industry. So the now-deceased Bill J. Pope was the husband of the former Margaret McConkie, the sister of LDS apostle Bruce R. McConkie and Oscar W. McConkie. 
Oscar was one of the founding partners of the LDS Church's main law firm, Kurt McConkie. So the ties don't end there. One of Bill and Margaret Pope's daughters, Catherine, is currently married to David Paxman, the eldest son of Judge Monroe and Shirley Brockbank Paxman, individuals named by David Lee Hamlin's daughters in their victim statements. Shirley Brockbank Paxman was the cousin of Mary June Adams Hamlin, David Lee Hamlin's mother. They also owned uh, a venue called the McCurdy Doll Museum. It was all of these antique dolls that were part of a collection, and the CS was allegedly allowed to use that venue for their ceremonies where they would rape children in the McCurdy Doll Museum. The Paxmans also had a retreat like a cabin out at Wildwood where the Hamlin's family also had one. And so they were tied into the same neighborhoods, the same, the same network, and of course it goes back to John Bunting, who's also partners with Dr. Bill J. Pope and Lewis Pope, and Bill J. Pope is the husband of Margaret McConkie, and Oscar, like uh, her brother-in-law, is he's one of the founding partners of Kurt McConkie. So the ties just keep unfolding in front of us over and over and over again to show you how connected and plugged in these people are. And remain. So we're, we're talking about things back in the 90s and early 2000s, but still it's the church law firm is Kurt and McConkie yeah. today. Yeah, and so when you're looking at it and in that context, you start to see why it's so difficult to hold these people to account. Because... What's your instinct going to be if, like, your brother or your business associate is accused of this, and maybe you're not culpable in it, you don't participate in it yourself, your instinct is going to be to defend them. Your instinct is going to be to say, no, I, I, I know this person. It's not going to be to acknowledge the possibility that this person operated right under your nose for decades involved in this kind of activity. So it doesn't necessarily have to be that these individuals are members of the CS. Like, you defend your friends. You defend your family members, especially from allegations of scurrilous. So there's that possible explanation. I'm not saying that the McConkies have to be Church of Satan members. I would be the first one to tell you, I don't have direct evidence in the form of allegations against either Bruce or Lewis McConkie. I don't, I don't have that. Like, I would be the first one to say that, to be fair. I do have those allegations against John Allen Bunting, and I do have a connection with John Allen Bunting to the men who would be connected to Kurt McConkie. Who is the guy in, in Colorado City that I just got just, arrested? I was just the one to bring that up. The guy who got arrested in Colorado City this is just came out David like George McConkie. David George McConkie. He for, got arrested. He in, got arrested for sexually abusing a relative for nine years. Okay. His grandson. And that's... that's the, It's the grandson of Bruce R. McConkie. Was just arrested. This was in the news in yeah. Colorado City for sexually abusing sexually abusing years. children for nine years. No, sexually abusing a child that a he child. was related to for One nine child. years. We don't have the specifics. I mean, obviously, they're not going to publicize the victim's name or who the victim is um, because it is an active criminal case. But he was arrested for that, and he's related to the McConkies. That does weigh against them. However, it does not constitute a direct allegation against Correct. them. Correct. It just means that someone in their family was accused of it 
and is facing a criminal case because of that. But in the larger context, it does not look good. Um, because one of the things that I said earlier to you, 93% of childhood abuse victims know their abuser. It's not a stranger. It's a member of their family or an associate of the family, someone who's known to the family. When you start looking at victims and abusers, what you'll see in the family trees is the presence of people who have been accused of abuse or who have been convicted of abuse, people who are on sex offender registries. I think so, this would be a really opportune time for some of these people who, if this has been going on in their families and they're not a part of it, to come, come forward and help clean it up rather than allow it to go quiet because they don't want to implicate a family member. Other, I mean, this. I, I just think that needs to happen, and I have a feeling it will happen. And I'll go a step further. If something like this has happened to you or someone close to you, you should feel safe that it's a good time to come out now. If this has been happening in your life or something that you've witnessed. This stuff needs to come out. This needs if, to come how, out. How, we, if you want to stop other abuse, it has to come out. Sunlight is the best disinfectant. No. And so another named accomplice in those victim statements is Gary and Joy Lundberg. Gary Lundberg is a licensed marriage and family therapist in Utah. He was allegedly present at the 1999 High Council excommunication of David Lee Hamlin. Joy Lundberg's mask allegedly fell off during the orgy at the close of the High Council's meeting. Katie Hamlin alleged that Gary and Joy were present during a Church of Satan ceiling at Richard Lloyd Anderson and Karma Anderson's Provo condo, and that she and her sisters were forced to perform oral sex on both Gary and Joy. So this is Gary and Joy Lundberg. These are alleged Church of Satan members, alleged sexual abusers of the Hamlin children. The Lundbergs are co-authors of various books on marriage, and Joy is a lyricist with over 170 songs to her credit with composer Janice Cap Perry. So... In the greater scheme of things, these are credible Latter-day Saints. These are experts on marriage from a Latter-day Saint perspective, but they're alleged to have held membership in this organization and to have abused children at the same time. And they just look like your standard nice grandma, grandpa. This is just where it's, it's very hard to like believe it. I'll be yeah. honest, it's very hard to believe that. You look at these people, it's very hard to believe it. I'm being straight. It would be extremely hard to believe it unless they were directly targeting you. So they're going to come across as grandfatherly and grandmotherly and, and really nice. And it, like most people have never sat in the room with a pedophile or a sexual abuser. I have. And what I would say to you is, at least initially, like they look and sound like a regular nice person. And it's only when you chip away at their aura, you confront them with, like, really hard facts that that starts to wear away and they start to get defensive. And then they start to articulate their perspective on it where they don't even believe it's abuse. You they know, believe it's their version of love for a child. So that's how these people contextualize things and they compartmentalize things in a way that normal people don't. And that's how they're able to maintain the facade. One of the things that that really stuck out to me in some of the victim statements that was common throughout all of them is this, um, from a very young age, their parents would, te would uh, teach them to switch personalities. They, they, she, the mother would come in and just absolutely terrify the kids. 
terrify them till they were like just just I mean terrified to to I mean and did did, did things that would I understand terrify him. And then a second later, she'd be their best friend and sweet and cuddly and kind and come sit in my lap and then boom, switch right back. It's called in. the scaring game. Right, the scaring game they called it. But what I noticed is then they would get the kids to do it to each other. And what I what I see is it teaches kids, at a year it ingrains and then to be able to switch personalities to now I'm playing the religious, the kind, and I can get into that role and be very convincing. And then a second later, I can be the most terrorizing person in the world. And that was something that I, that fascinated me as I was reading through there. And, and I think that's the only thing that helps me make sense of some of these people who, to me, I, I have a hard time wrapping my mind around it. I honestly do. So one of the things that you have to understand about early childhood development is there have been studies done, and you can watch videos on the Internet of this, where it's like a newborn and the newborn's mother is interacting with him and looking him in the face and like talking to him, cooing, cooing at him as a mother does. But then as part of the study, the mother turns around and looks away and doesn't pay any attention to the, the child at all. And the child's face like just gradually gets confused and contorted and is trying to get the mom's attention, but the mother isn't giving that child the attention that is elemental to that child's healthy well-being and psychological development at that stage of their lives like facial expressions and whatnot you have to understand david lee hamlin and clyde everett sullivan who is one of his in-laws um, were both trained psychologists they would have been aware of this the methodology just didn't just come out of nowhere they were taking what they learned as trained psychologists and therapists and, and applying it to abuse in order to produce dissociation in children, in order to turn children into dissociative individuals who could be sadistic and also mimic what the adults were doing, but ultimately with the purpose of evolving into the kind of adults who could commit this abuse. And it really seems like there's an effort to fragment their personalities. You, well, you, you go, see that. You go back to Fenton at the beginning of the presentation. She moved into the house. She had known, what was the condition? Multiple personalities. Right. Multiple personalities. She had, we call it dissociative identity disorder now. Um, so but, but that's there's, obviously but, a part of it. I mean, he's, Right, but, but part of that too is, it, is it's almost like there's, it, they have different spirits living within them. And that was one of the things, Angela, there's one, when she was one person, she had these spirits and another person had different, different spirits. And what it reminds me of is I watched something this morning on uh, Instagram. You saw it? And it was this girl who says, this, these males within me want me to change, the, want me to go through surgery and become finally transitioned into a man. And so she's, deal, she's actually talking on the screen about these multiple, multiple personalities, these multiple spirits within her. And I can't help see the same thing as you've got this one personality that I'm a spiritual person and I truly believe it. And then the next minute I'm, I'm, I'm a complete, I'm a complete monster. And it almost is like they can't recti I mean, reconcile themselves. Well, ideally the outcome would be that the child becomes an adult who cannot remember the abuse, um, but it's completely contained within different altars. Right. So, the, like, one altar would be normal outwardly, um, blend in with society and the neighborhood without calling any attention to themselves. And the other altar would be the one that switched on to perform, like, extreme acts of sadism and cruelty. That would be the ultimate goal. 
of David Lee Hamlin. That's that's what he's trying to induce in his children, and in the other children whose parents he's training within the CS group. And this is the last side note. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say the biggest distinction I see between Grandma and Papa down the street and the loon online who thinks they have you know, 10 different personalities and they're trapped in the body where one of their personalities is going through puberty and another one is, you know. I'm identify as a girl or I'm identify as a guy, the trans, right. this that, is trans that, stuff. Per, that person looks outward, outwardly to someone of sane, reasonable mind, like a crazy person. But someone like this, like grandma and papa and, and whatever they're doing generationally, this seems perfectly sane and normal because. Because they have it contained. Right. They're controlled. You know what else is interesting? Then we're going to leave this. Uh, th this These people who say, I, I am not a, don't call me a he or a she, I'm this or I'm they. Mm -hmm. And when Christ, you know, approached um, one of the men who was possessed by, you know, demons, who are you? I am legion. I am many. You know, and I think that's really what we're seeing is we're seeing through this trans movement people who are literally being multiple personalities, multiple spirits within them. It, that's. I can't help not yeah, see these connections. I can't speak to that clinically. My understanding of gender dysphoria, <clears throat> which is the clinical term for transgenderism, is that an, an astonishing amount of people who have gender dysphoria are autistic. So they're on the spectrum. Well, I'll tell you what we're going to get into. Gordon Bowen, who said he was inhabited by female spirits. Yes. Let's, so let's go. We got a lot to cover. That. Let's get we got a lot so, to cover. You know... Named accomplices Gary and Bonnie Hansen. Katie Hamlin names Gary and Bonnie Hansen as her abusers, citing a CS nativity ceremony where she was orally sodomized by Gary and Bonnie Hansen. Gary and Joy Lundberg were present and participating in the sexual abuse of Katie's sister at the same ceremony. Katie Hamlin also alleged that Bonnie Hansen gave her and her sister soft blankets that were used during the abuse. Gary Hansen gave the Hamlin girls jewelry when he would abuse them. That's a pretty standard operating procedure within the CS group to give children a trinket or a gift and then to say you're obligated to perform for me sexually. If you read through the victim yeah, statements, that, that happens over and over and over again. It's part of the conditioning and the grooming. So named accomplices, Gordon Bowen. Named as the LDS Church of Satan High Council Punisher oh, in Salt geez. Lake. All right, buckle up. Working directly under the as yet unidentified <sighs> Master Mahan on that council. He's an advertising executive who started in Chicago as a copywriter. He made his way to Bonneville Communications in Salt Lake City and then to Ogilvy Mather in New York City with four Bonneville co workers, one of whom is also an alleged CS member named Lincoln Kevin Kelly. Rachel, Eliza, and Catherine Hamlin allege that Bowen abused them on two separate occasions at one of his residences in Salt Lake City. So fall of 1999. Yeah, buckle this, up. This is Gordon Bowen's home in the avenues in Salt Lake City. He had two, one on Yale Avenue and one right behind it on Harvard Avenue, separated by a creek that ran through the property. Now the context here is the divorce has started. Dave and Rosie are very concerned about what the High Council will ultimately do to them for what they've been up to. So they go down to Gordon Bowen's home, Rosie with her daughters. To, to, make, to make amends to the Punisher. Yeah. So, like, uh, David had been very concerned about what was happening with the divorce trial, etc. Our, our parents had been very concerned about what was happening with the divorce trial, etc. They wrote love letters back and forth to each other for a while. Both David and Rosie were in trouble with the High Council 
that Richard, that Gordon or Richard was on. One night, Rosie told me that all of us, um, uh, Eliza and I included, were in danger of being punished. She said we had to go visit Gordon Bowen with offerings, us, and maybe he would be pacified, not go after us. I knew Gordon's reputation was terrified that we were going to see him. Rosie said if I did not cooperate, she would arrange me to have, she would arrange to have me live with him for a few months, telling others that I was out of the country again. We drove up with Janae Jones, Janae's daughters, and several other girls. We drove in separate cars to Gordon Bowen's house. No one was home, but Rosie op- opened the house somehow. The girls had planned on swimming, but the pool was dirty and full of leaves. Instead, we went into the house, and Rosie started getting the food out of the fridge for the meal she had planned to make him. Janae and Eliza and I helped prepare the meal and clean up. I was sent upstairs to a bedroom. Rosie assigned me with the order to not come out and do anything and everything uh, Gordon told me to do. I'm not sure who left or stayed, but I did hear redacted probably one of her sisters crying in the night i sat on the bed and stared at the door when gordon right, by, by, by the way this this first one's not as bad but this this is probably if, if you if the stuff in the past has bothered you you may want to fast forward this section yeah so when gordon finally came in came in it seemed very late he became very violent and enraged as he raped me vaginally then he told me not to move and he got a small leather bundle he had brought in the room with him It had a leather tie, and he unrolled it to reveal a set of small, strangely shaped knives. He described each one to me, how sharp they were. He showed me by barely touching it to one of my fingers and how easily it cut and started bleeding right away. He described how he used them on disobedient young women to skin and fillet them, among other things. He told me I was never to tell anyone I had been at his house that night. After he left the room, I held my finger until it stopped bleeding. I cried as I heard my sister crying, and a lot of other sounds, voices, laughing, animal-like sounds, and screaming throughout the night. So why are they punishing the children? I mean, this should none of this should be rational or logical to us. But They're why punishing would they, the wife, the, the mother. And the, the, mother. the mother is coming to offer the children as a peace offering to the punisher. For the divorce. That for the divorce. For her, she was complicated. She, was impl- she was, had, had a role to play in, in some of the problems, too. She wasn't just her husband. She was involved... She was a little bit off too, too. She was also too publicly bringing too much attention to this organization. Well, and it was so her this was, father that was during that ritual. That was her father that had raped yes. his granddaughters. Yes. So this was her coming to make peace from, and when you understand who this guy is, she's probably terrified for this guy too. So this is her bringing her children to, as a, as a peace offering to get so that to get back in his good graces and knowing what he the would do. The role of them. Gordon Bowen is that when you run afoul of the CS, he's the one who deals with you, and he could kill you, he could torture you, he could dismember you, he could do any number of things to you, he could do whatever he wants. So, you asked me to bring a video of his home on uh, Yale Avenue where this allegedly occurred. So this video is from a real estate agency that listed that home. I'm surprised they even put this on the market. Wasn't it usually sold between Church of Satan members or families? 
Well, they publicly advertised it. Now, the family that bought it ultimately wound up selling it to Westminster College. So when you read the, these girls' victim statements, they describe this home. Yes. And, it, and, and the paint, every, you, and it's exactly as it is here. So, yes, I mean, as you'll see, there are balconies. The girls played harp at public performances. Um, they played it on the balconies at Gordon Bowen's home in Salt Lake for the elites of the CS. When they were invited up to Salt Lake, it was the creme de la creme of the CS crowd. It was the rich people. So basically what you're getting into is you're talking about a house that conforms. It has a pool on the property. Of the four properties that I linked Gordon Bowen to in Salt Lake around the avenues in the surrounding neighborhoods, this is the one that fits the description. At the time, it was undergoing remodeling. So in 1999, they would have been living, Gordon and his family would have been living in the Harvard Avenue house behind this one. Um, they would have not been present in this one. This one would have been undergoing a remodel. He, every one of his properties, he extensively remodels and redecorates. And these aren't just houses. These are multi-million dollar mansions. So he's going over there at night. I talked to sources who indicated that he would go over there at night to quote unquote check on the work that was being done. So he would have had this house to himself to do what's going to be described in the next victim statement section. So this is the second victim, the second visit to Gordon's home. We, uh, Rachel. All right, th this is, this is definitely for those with uh, tender hearts, a fast forward. This is one of the most disturbing, this is the most disturbing thing I've ever seen in my life. So we, Eliza, Katie, and I went to Gordon's, point, Gordon's house again a short time later. This time, Rosie said she was going to talk with him, and we were to support everything she said or she would make good on her previous threat. We got there, and no one was home. Rosie made a big dinner as before. Gordon came home, and Rosie offered him dinner. Then we sat in his library. It was very dark outside by then, and the room was not well lit. Gordon sat on the side of his chair with his ankle crossed on his knee, listening to Rosie. She started talking about our hardships, what David was doing defending him, but trying to make herself look like the victim at the same time. She kept trying to find out, without asking directly and with a lot of flattery, when the what the council had planned for she and David. I kept thinking about how, all growing up, David had talked about the gifts Gordon had from Lucifer. He said he had a very powerful gift of discernment from Lucifer and could tell if you were lying to him. That is partly how he became the punisher, they said. Rosie tried to make us chime in with her, but most of the time we were too intimidated to speak. After a while, he stood up and he said he wanted to show us what he was working on. He talked about how much he loved his work for the church, the CS. He took us to his work area and I became overwhelmed with what I saw. There was a dead man's body hanging from the ceiling and it had been completely skinned. I had seen skinning before, but never on the scale or this cleanly or expertly done. Parts of the area were well lit and parts were not. There were machines in what looked like a fridge. He talked about some of them. There were large work tables with movable straps and other devices to hold someone down. One had lights like in a surgery room and another had just one overhead hanging light. Are you going to be okay? Yeah. All right. 
In another area, he had a collection of torture devices. A lot of them were antique. He talked about some of them and what they did to people's bodies. I kept looking over at what I thought were mannequins set up in sexual or violent poses around the room. Then he showed us his mask. Many members of the church, the Church of Satan, have collections of masks around the world, ceremonial masks or death masks, for example, Brian Krasnick and others. Also, um, Rosie loved to talk about how she got to see Joseph and Hiram Smith's death mask. Gordon probably had 30 to 40, but they were made from the skin of real dead people, men, women, and all ages of children that had been disobedient, he said. Rosie was trying to flatter him and have him talk about how he made them. He showed us his drawers of his special tools that he had collected in his travels and talked about how important it was to preserve the facial features. The mask had the hair still on, and the eyes and the mouth were slits or a little more stretched open. He took one down and made us touch it. He said the people's spirits were still in these masks. He talked about how he would treat the skin to make it soft. He put a woman's mask on his head, and he laughed. He showed us coats and other pieces of clothing he had made with the pieces of many people's skins and dried sexual organs. He also had some shrunken heads. Rosie kept complimenting him, and she told him that... We were she and David's offering to Gordon for his kindness to them. She said he could do anything he wanted with us. Eliza and I looked at each other horrified. He turned like we were all leaving and we followed. Rosie took the lead, looking over her shoulder and talking to him all the way. She walked out of the door to his work area. Instead of us all going, he shut the door and locked it behind her. From what we heard, she didn't knock or yell or get upset. All we heard was silence. Then we experienced hours and hours of torture. We were naked most of the night. He told us that the mannequins were actually fully preserved outer shells of real people. Their skin, hair, etc. Some were more stiff than the mask. He had sewn some seams to another, so another person could wear them. They were hung over posable wire bodies. Gordon put on the full skin of a man with a crotch cut out and raped me anally, praising Lucifer. He made me wear another man's skin that had no hands and feet, and the crotch could open. He did this with Eliza at different times and also made Katie, also made us do sexual acts on each other with the skins on. He told us that we, he could make Lucifer's spirit smooth the bodies around on their own. He made us sit or lie down on his torture devices or on his table while he demonstrated, or nearly demonstrated, his torture selection, his torture collection. He chained us up to his tables and inserted tools and devices into our vaginas and anuses. At times, he chained us to the walls in shackles. He put cloth bags over our heads and made us listen as one of us was threatened with torture. He had animal heads and skins that we had to wear, and he led us around on a leash. We were supposed to act and sound like the animal. I had to wear dog skin and lick him, give him oral sex, and bark like a dog. He made me lift my le leg and pee on my sister. Then he called me a bad dog, whipped me with chains, and took the skin off of me. He put me in a small wooden box. I could hear the sounds of him doing things to one of my sisters, but I couldn't see anything. The air was hot, and the space was so small and tight, I could barely move my body. My arms and legs went to sleep and were extremely painful. I wished we could all die. When he took me out, I couldn't feel my legs and fell on the floor. I lay there until the feeling came back in my legs. Once 
in a while he went out, and several times Rosie brought him food on a tray to the door, not for us. Once he worked on one of the skins, we were not allowed out until afternoon of the next day. We had urinated his command or by accident, and he had urinated and ejaculated all over us throughout the night. He had put other fluids from his work area on us. Our body had red masks all over them and were red marks all over them and were already showing bruises. My vagina and anus stung. Rosie put towels on the seat of the car, disgusted by how gross we were. No one wanted to sit in the front with Rosie, and no one talked on the way home. Rosie and I put Eliza and Katie in the same seat belt in the middle seat. A day or two later, in the middle of the night, Rosie woke me up, and she and Richard grilled me alone on every detail of the experience. Or possibly David grilled on it. Um, so this is Gordon Bowen. He is the alleged Church of Satan High Council Punisher in Salt Lake City, Utah. He's an advertising executive and the co-founder of his current agency, Densley McGarry Bowen. <clears throat> yeah, I'm really thankful for the uh, Sound of Freedom. And it woke up a lot of mothers and fathers who want to stand up and defend children. You know, and the thing, the thing of my frustration with Sound of Freedom is that it makes it seem like this stuff's all going on in a third world country. And for all of those mothers and fathers that said, I'm going to stand and fight for children, you got testimonies of several little girls right here. And we're going to show you who this guy is. And, and we're going to show you facts of who he is and other things that come in his life and, if you th and, and that, that collaborate with these girls. And for all those of you who say, well, I want to care about freedom. I'm going to go out and protect the traffic, the kids. I'm going to donate to OUR. This is in your freaking backyard, and we know that we're giving you names. And for the men out there, what does it mean to be a man? It means to be a protector. And all these men, I'll tell you, I'll touch, afraid to even come on this show because they know what's here. Who's protecting these kids? You know, and all these moms, well, I don't want to touch it. I don't want to look at it. It's too dark. It's too dark. That's why, this, that's why this has gotten where it's gotten since the 80s, because no one has the balls to say enough's enough, and we're going to look into this. And again, this is not speculation. This is substantiated court documents, victim statements. That are being hidden and suppressed. Show us who Gordon Bowman is, who is still around. The guy who designed the church's logo, by the way. He's accused of raping uh, Rachel, Eliza, and Katie Hamlin. He was exposed in his divorce proceedings as a homosexual man with predilections for gay male escorts. He was allegedly raped as a child by a family friend while his father watched. According to Lynn Packer, journalist and consultant in Bowen's divorce from ex-wife Barbara Timothy, Bowen allegedly told his ex-wife that he wished he could nurse their daughter Lily with his penis when he walked in on Barbara Timothy nursing Lily with her breast. Despite Bowen's 2003 excommunication, Apostle M. Russell Ballard retained Gordon Bowen to produce a church film on Jesus Christ. The film was deemed unsalvageable by the LDS after a screening at Bowen's house in Salt Lake. It cost a reported $20 million. 
The statements about Bowen's homosexuality, use of male escorts, and alleged childhood rape at the hands of a family friend while his father watched are not mere allegations. They are sworn statements from people who knew Bowen and swore to their veracity of their statements under penalty of perjury. The following clips are from Lynn Packer's reports on Gordon Bowen. So we're going to show you video clips that journalist Lynn Packer did as part of his reports um, on OUR, actually. And he brought out the facts on Gordon Bowen. So this is the first clip. It's the sworn statements. In connection with Bowen's divorce and custody dispute, a former FBI agent gathered almost a dozen sworn statements from former Bowen co-workers. Here are some excerpts. He said he had been raped and sodomized by a man who was a friend of his father while his father looked on. I went to Gordon's house for one night only. Gordon showed me sheets that had been cut and clothing that had been torn. He told me that evil spirits had done these things. Gordon claimed to be beset with evil spirits nibbling on his body. Gordon would call me and ask me to stop by his house and stay with him because of his fear of evil spirits. Once I went to his house and found him looking exhausted and sitting in a corner on the floor. He told me he'd been choked by an unseen evil presence. I recall that Gordon was an endless pattern of deception and deceit. While at Bonneville, Gordon would make a point to talk about how other people had said how Christ-like he was. I observed Gordon had delusions of grandeur. It seemed he felt he had some grand mission to accomplish in the church. But at the same time, it was obvious he wasn't active. More often than not, he did not go to church on Sundays. Gordon wore his membership in the Mormon church on his sleeve. His wicked ways have scarred forever the reputation of the church in the New York advertising community. Gordon's homosexual, sadomasochistic activities became an embarrassing, widespread joke in the advertising community. In about 1987, when Bowen lived in a suburb in Westchester County, neighborhood boys had broken into his home and smeared feces on the walls and furniture. A friend said it appeared Gordon had been involved with the youths and that they were none too happy about it. In about 1992, Bowen did not show up to a meeting. Soon thereafter, there were rumors that Bowen was found naked, chained or handcuffed to a bed or radiator, feces smeared on his body. Gordon told me that he had burned his dick while he was ironing. He explained that he was naked while ironing and that the iron hit his penis. Gordon liked to tell various stories involving a penis. He repeatedly told about being in the bathtub and having his penis rise to the surface and about his cat attacking his penis. I heard him tell this several times. So this is the man. <clears throat> so I read these victim statements from these girls and I read and, I, and we see these sworn statements. I don't have a lot of, I don't know, shoe fits. So his own writings came back to haunt him in his divorce position, deposition. Bowen wrote of a little girl who was sentenced to death for killing a man who was sexually abusing her and killing children. And he further wrote that she was accused of sleeping with a man. This parallels 
Katie Hamlin's victim statement because Katie Hamlin alleges in her victim statement that one of the child prostitution patrons who came to her house to rape her, um, she was in bed with him, and she took something and stabbed him in his neck and killed him. Um, it also dovetails with what the CS tells girls, according to all of the victim statements, which is that even as toddlers, females draw out and entice men. And so it isn't rape when a grown man has sex with a toddler who's a female because she drew it out of him and enticed him and tempted him. So it removes and externalizes all accountability and puts all of the responsibility on a child who's two, three, four, or five years old, however old, it's her fault because she tempted him and she drew him out. So all of those details from those victim statements dovetail directly with what he was writing about in this instance. In his story, The Holy Dream. And this is sick. Bowen rides of writes of a naked engorged Jesus riding a black horse. Bowen writes that children run forward and begin touching all my hidden And wasn't places. he the horse? Wasn't in the, he in was the, the horse. He was That's the what horse it appears and, and like Jesus if you read. Jesus was engorged riding him. I mean, and this, the, in this, the church paid this guy $20 million to write a, to do a film about Jesus. Yes, and this, this all came out in his divorce before they gave him that. And he was excommunicated before they gave him the $20 million to run, to, to produce that film. This is, by the way... This is the guy with the church when they redesigned the logo with Jesus Christ emphasized back in 93, 94, 95. He was the one who designed it. This, this, just so you know who this, who this man is. He is very relevant in Utah. He is very involved. He was very involved in the Olympics with Romney. He came up with the slogan uh, for the Olympics. He was later forced to admit that he got it off of a restaurant menu. And, and this is the man that sodomized these girls and has killed countless people. And because we... Allegedly. Allegedly. Thank you. Allegedly. And, no, and with all these victim statements, nobody's going after this guy. Well, I wouldn't say nobody. I've been writing about him for a year. But, but, but. but, but, no, but the law is not <laughs> touching him because, because, they, because, this, because the law is, in, is part of this. Allegedly. That's, Allegedly. Yeah. So... This is his dearest savior script. These are the writings that pretty much were the nail in the coffin for him. Gordon's dearest savior script. For Barbara and Jesus, my only true loves. It's in 1992. There it is. Open with a child, long blonde hair, blue eyes. She is in prison. As far as I can see, are thousands of adult men naked. All have extremely small penises, but they are fixated on them. In fact, all are doing exercises of some kind or another to make them larger. Do you remember that, writing that? I don't. Is that not your writing? Yes, it is. A couple more quotes from Bowen's script. I am holding the child. She is sentenced to death for killing a man. The man, who is the largest, looks surprisingly like my father, doing penis exercises feverishly. The man she killed was killing children and sexually abusing them. 
She says she was not sleeping with the man, although some accuse her of it. The second story, Bowen titled The Holy Dream. He was also asked about it during his deposition. It's a story about Jesus riding a horse. There's a scripture in the Old Testament about Jesus riding a white horse, but Bowen's story has him riding a black horse. Here's the storyline. A voice tells a boy child he needs to cross a treacherous ravine to find hidden treasure, gold, on the other side. In the ravine below, he sees a river of blood with millions of heads bobbing to the surface, disemboweled, disembodied, but very much alive. The voice says, you must cross the ravine now. Make the leap of faith. Jesus will carry you. Just come to me, Jesus, right on my back. We will cross the chasm together. The story describes a juicy, naked, engorged Jesus mounting a black horse, wrapping his bare thighs around the hairy mane. It seems the Bowen story infers at times he's the horse that Jesus mounted. The horse says or thinks, I'm ready for this eternal rider. Rub me. Help me. Then he writes, and this is copied from the script, children run forward. There are hundreds of them, but a few, a chosen few, come forward with outstretched arms and begin to stroke me, touch all my hidden places, the tingling tenderness. I feel overwhelmed with awe. Awe. So, I don't know why that man's not in an electric chair. I... I, the thing that I would say to you after all that, that came out in his divorce, and Judge Ellie Deaver still gave him joint custody with his wife, um, his ex-wife, Barbara Timothy, of their two youngest children. Like, even after that played in depositions was entered into evidence, Let's give he was still given joint kids. custody and visitation. Um, so Bowen allegedly retained David Lee Hamlin's services to exercise the feminine spirits he believed were causing his homosexuality. He also used Hamlin to try and convince his estranged wife's son that God would be angry with Barbara Timothy if she followed through on her plans to divorce Gordon. Bowen and Hamlin attempted to convince Barbara Timothy's son that his mother was off her rocker. Barbara Timothy's son swore an affidavit detailing these accusations. Again, these allegations are sworn out under penalty of perjury. So he put himself on the line that he could be punished for perjury if these allegations were proven to be untrue or if he ever recanted or admitted that, you know, I was lying. So this is the section that Lynn Packer did on the exorcisms. He attempted to convert himself from gay to straight during the marriage. He believed his homosexuality was caused by evil spirits or female spirits that inhabited his body. He sought to have those spirits cast out by self-proclaimed exorcists, David Hamlin, Melvin Fish, and Kissy Watkins. Hamlin is the one arrested this past September. Fish and Watkins are deceased. Hamlin divorced in 2003. During the trial, he was accused of experimenting with his children using peyote and hypnotism. Two of four daughters testified he sexually abused them. 
trial judge, Stephen Hansen, found that during the period between 1991 and 1999, petitioner taught each of his minor children and respondent, that's his wife, about his parts theories and used his minor children as guinea pigs or experiments by conducting psychological therapy with his minor children, including, among other things, the use of hypnosis and giving them priesthood blessings. Petitioner gave each of them, including, and I've redacted out the daughter's name, Peyote, on at least one occasion. One daughter became violently ill as a result of using Peyote, and another became dizzy and hallucinated. Kissy Watkins attended BYU and the University of Utah. She was a return Mormon missionary. She worked with David Hamblin. She engaged in quackery practicing Christ-centered healing and cranial osteopathy and foot zoning. Dr. Melvin Fish wrote the book, Healing the Inner Self. I interviewed him prior to his passing. He told me, Gordon told me he was gay and needed help. Fish performed a kinesiology test and found Bowen possessed by two or three malicious female spirits who made Bowen 90% gay. Fish exercised the spirits, changing Bowen to 10% gay, which he considered normal. Bowen talked about the exorcism in his journal with God speaking to him. You have rid yourself of 90% of your age parts. However, what remains is strong and female and robs you of power and voice. Trust me, believe faithful. Fill your body with faith. Mel is right. You are not an H-man, referring to homosexual. This is Satan's lie. Another entry where God speaks to him. Gordon, my son, believe what happened with Mel and with Kissy. It's true. You did cast out female spirits from your body that are not you. You are not an H-man, period. One of Barbara's sons, by her first marriage, provided an affidavit about David Hamblin. David Hamblin arrived to stay in Gordon's New York apartment, who had been Gordon's therapist years ago. Having had his license revoked, and his specialty now was casting out evil spirits. They sat us down and essentially told us that our mom was off her rocker that if she did leave Gordon, she would be making a serious mistake and that God would be very angry with her. You know what I see here? Sincere split personalities. I see a sincere a, a side of Gordon Bowman, Bowen <clears throat> who is sincere. And I see a side of him that's an absolute monster that needs to be locked up and, and probably executed. And, and that reminds me of, of the quote by um, Alexander Schultz, and it's in the line between good and evil divides, what is it, divides every one of us. There is no all evil or all good. We all have it both in us. But the fact of what he's done, regardless of there's a side in him that feels regret and remorse, this, is on, this, this, this guy has to be, the fact he's roaming around and still being you know, involved in the community, this is out of control. Well... 
Bowen's hiring of male escorts is also not mere supposition or allegation. It is proven by his phone records and his own admissions during a deposition. Under oath, Gordon Bowen admitted to retaining male escorts for massages, and he also admitted that those escorts had fondled him. He denied having a sexual relationship with a man. The cognitive dissonance there. That was under like oath. You, you saw that he, in his yeah. journals, he says he's clearly struggling with homosexuality. I don't know how another man fondles you, yeah. and it's not some form of a sexual relationship. Look, there may be a side of him that's, that has a sincere desire to do right, but but what he that does not negate the abuse, the murdering, sodomizing of these of these children and countless people what i see in him as a man who is aware of the difference between right and wrong he clearly has some serious mental health issues um but one of the takeaways from this is kissy watkins actually appears in the victim statement so that's another level of corroboration so she's she's mentioned in the victim statements that, that are filled out by the Hamlin girls. So there's a relationship there and an overlap there between her and Hamlin. As a perpetrator. And not necessarily as a perpetrator, kind of like borderline. Mm-hmm. It doesn't get into a great deal of specifics or detail, but there's she, her, the fact that her name pops up at all is further corroboration of this. I think it's interesting. I mean, it's easy to glaze over. You can't even call them small details, but... How do both of them die mysteriously, uh, both Fish and Well, and Fish, she was like 70 years old when she died, so it's not, That's not too necessarily suspicious. Um, I don't recall off the top of my head at the moment like how Fish died, but he was up there in years too. But knowing that there is real human sacrifice that happens, you know, obviously it's insinuated in some of the more graphic accounts no no there are some that actually talk about about where they actually bring children in little little kids like on christmas and they actually have a sacrifice of a child so is it usually the children that are sacrificed or is it would it be any age so basically you're looking at a situation where the children would be the primary focus in the victim statements so there's two major sources that they're getting children from polygamous some of the some of the polygamous families are getting kids from there um, that they use for sacrifices. They use them for sacrifices. Also, kids off of Indian reservations. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, kids from within the group whose parents have been disobedient. Um, that's their punishment is they have to give the child up for a sacrifice within the group's ordinances. So to recap, Gordon Bowen was an excommunicated Latter-day Saint by January 2003. He was accused of hiring gay male escorts, and that was proven and engage in in homosexual liaisons throughout the 80s and 90s. Despite these facts, and despite the fact that M. Russell Ballard's office was warned that Bowen was a child molester, Ballard and the church gave Bowen church funds to produce an LDS film about the life of Jesus Christ. Now, they can have... $20 million. $20 million, allegedly. They could have their pick of any producer or director to, to produce that film. But instead, they chose, they, they chose Gordon Bowen, an excommunicated Latter-day Saint. Uh, apparently, he's been rebaptized since then. Um, he still does work and consults with the church, even after his excommunication. And this is 
Lynn Packers like revelations about that secret movie. Ballard's and Bowen secret Jesus movie. It's an example of the continuing alliance between the men. It was a multi-million dollar project. Ballard and the Mormon Church entrusted to Bowen, despite Bowen's odd, even eerie notions about the Savior. The tales about the Jesus movie have been kept secret. Neither Ballard nor Bowen will comment. What little is known in about 2019, the LDS Church, likely via Russell Ballard and the Public Affairs Committee, wanted to commission a Hollywood-style feature film about Jesus Christ. Power directed the project to his longtime friend and media advisor, Gordon Bowen, rather than to the church's in-house, Bonneville Communications. The movie project, ostensibly costing $20 million, was never publicly announced, and details about when and where it was filmed kept secret. As the project began, a member of the church who knew Gordon Bowen wrote Russell Ballard, describing Bowen's unsavory reputation. I had to tell Ballard this guy is really bad, the writer said. The letter asked, what if it comes to the attention of the national press? This man has so much influence with LDS leaders, and he's a child molester. It would be terrible for the church. The member got a phone response from Ballard's secretary saying, we're keeping an eye on him. The project proceeded under Bowen's direction, and at least a rough cut of the movie was produced. After the film was shot and edited, Bowen apparently previewed it in his Salt Lake home for some Mormon general authorities. One source outside church leadership circles who saw the film said it was a disaster. The footage was said to have been turned over to the church's in-house division for film production, Bonneville Communications, to see if they could salvage it. Apparently not. No Mormon Jesus movie has yet been announced. But what Ballard and church media relations will not come. Uh, is, did uh, You mentioned to me that you had a source, and this is probably, I don't know if it's confirmable or not, but a source that said... Obviously, right now, one of the things that's been very hot is the thing with um, Tim Ballard and the church, the letter he got from the church about uh, calling him out. Well, he didn't get the letter. It was published in Vice. There you go. There they you didn't go. send it to him. There you go. And, tell, and share with us what your, uh, your source said about that. So generally speaking, I don't print things unless I have three sources, and I only have one source here. Another source, like recently kind of corroborated it, but not directly. Um, but the allegation is is that Gordon Bowen was the one who drafted that letter that was published in Vice magazine or on Vice's online site um, talking about and condemning uh, Tim Ballard's immoral activity. I find that interesting. Pot calling the kettle black. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's consistent. Like He's one of their go-to guys for messaging and for marketing because that's his specialty. So despite Gordon Bowen's less than discreet activities throughout Utah, New York, Chicago, Las Vegas, and elsewhere, he was able to maintain his relationship with an LDS quorum of the 12 member and then Russell Ballard. That relationship led to the church giving Gordon Bowen $20 million 
to produce a film on Jesus Christ, despite the fact that he had been previously excommunicated years earlier. When a church member wrote to Ballard to warn him that Bowen was a child molester, Ballard's secretary responded by saying, we're keeping an eye on him. So if the Hamlin girls' allegations against Gordon Bowen are true, he is guilty of child rape, sodomy of a child, and murder where the Hamlin girls are concerned. He is a clearly mentally disturbed individual who believes his homosexuality is caused by demonic spirits. I don't disagree. His co-workers and associates swore out a dozen affidavits detailing his inappropriate and illegal behavior, including allegations that boys in his neighborhood vandalized his home in Westchester County due to his involvement with them. Despite the allegations in his divorce and the documentation produced, the judge in Bowen's divorce, L.A. Devers, gave him joint custody with Barbara Timothy. And kept all this, for the most part, out of the public's eye. Gordon Bowen's Romney connection. So Mitt Romney, the U.S. Senator for Utah, has a nearly 40-year-long association and friendship with Gordon Bowen. Mitt's sons, Craig and Ben, interned at Bowen's advertising agency. Craig and Ben lived with Bowen in New York City during internships at uh, Bowen's advertising okay. agency. Okay, keep in mind what kind of man this is. And you've got Mitt Romney's sons living with him? During their internships. So if you can't put two and two together, I'm sorry. Craig Romney told Lynn Packer he knew that Gordon Bowen was gay due to his mannerisms. Uh, one of Mitt's other sons working at Reebok as like a, a marketing executive funneled an advertising account to Gordon at his agency. So the overlap in the Bowen, Romney, and Hamlin network continues through a group Roselle Stevenson held a board membership with, the Mormon Transhumanist Association. Mitt Romney's daughter-in-law, Adeline Jade, is the daughter of Randall Paul, a director of the Mormon Transhumanist Association. Following her arrest for charges involving sexually abusing Emily Sheets, Roselle Stevenson resigned her board membership of the Mormon Transhumanist Association. So if you look at Roselle Stevenson's background relative to the other members of the MTA, she took eight years to complete her undergraduate degree at BYU. She has no science, technology, engineering, or math experience. Nearly all of the other people have master's and doctorate degrees, and yet somehow she winds up on the board. And the only explanation for that is her fam- familial network. And I'll tell you, sorry, go ahead. Her and familiar her network. Like connection with people who are connected like Gordon Bowen and Mitt Romney. And this Mormon Transhumanist Society, if, you're, if you didn't see our show, we did a show with Chelsea Hope on that. And uh, that gets into the Fourth Industrial Revolution, and, and uh, that is scary stuff. As if all of this. Isn't. As if all the rest of this wasn't. But I'll just tell you, that's where a lot of the globalist stuff comes in, the stuff with World Economic Forum. It's, this stuff's, the connections are just insane. Yeah. So the Hamlin allegations up into 2014. There is nothing in the record to indicate that the Provo Police Department ever questioned Gordon Bowen, Gary and Bonnie Hansen, Gary and Joy Lundberg, or John Bunting after the Rachel Eliza and Kath- after Rachel Eliza and Catherine Hamlin made their allegations in 2012 to 2014. Conrad Godfordson and Angela Fenton are not mentioned in any police reports, despite police reports, despite being in the victim statements. It would appear that the investigation was incomplete at best. 
and strictly limited to David Lee Hamlin, who was the only defendant charged between 2012 and 2014. I mean, so does that imply that the basically chief of police there was just saying turning their turning their turning basically turning a blind eye to all this? Well, you got to think about the implications for his career. And also the implications for whatever position he had in the church. This is what you would call rat poison. Um, if you did follow it, there's a very good chance you're going to face personal repercussions, even if you're right. Um, so that could explain it. He doesn't necessarily have to be a part of it. He just has to be looking out for himself and his bottom line and his pension. Now, wasn't there a lot of stuff leaked from the Provo Police Department somewhat recently? That's well, give, that's getting these us more information. Themselves, the victim statements, and these were leaked. They this. weren't leaked. They were part of a grandma request. Hmm. So Jenny Hatch and another person um, filed a grandma request. I got a hold of these, but they were in circulation before that grandma request, because a man named Nicholas Rossi, who was kind of David Levitt's white whale, he's the fugitive in Scotland. He had access to that, to those reports, at least one of them. And he was publicizing the contents on his website. He wasn't publishing the reports, but he knew the contents of the reports, and he was putting them on his website. The interesting thing about it is the only other name that appears in the Hamlin case police reports from 2012 to 2014 is David Okerlund Levitt, the former Utah County attorney. He's listed as OP, other person. The Provo Police Department's records make no note of the familial connection between the Hamlin, between Hamlin and many of his alleged accomplices, including David Levitt. Jacob V. Hamlin is David Levitt's second great-granduncle through marriage to Sarah Priscilla Levitt. Jacob's brother Oscar is David Lee Hamlin's second great-grandfather. Yeah, can, all right, we need we need to explain something here that I don't think we've we've hit. So, and, and we've we've alluded to it, but the way that these. Uh, organizations work as their generational that's correct? what the girls allege that it's a that's what the girls say group. so that it goes it is it is grandparents it's through the bloodline yeah and so basically the grandparents abuse the children who then abuse their children who abuse their children and they even save desks and furniture and, and things from the grandparents and they'll do certain acts on that because it brings in the spirit they the believe that the, the objects have spiritual power from the acts that have been committed Previously, through, yes. through their so there so that's why you, we talk here talks so much about different bloodlines and families is because it's again they abuse the children and that brings the children in, into the organization who then abuse their children it keeps everybody locked in mm-hmm. okay. generationally generationally so that's so, the, so that's why family ties matter so much and I'm sure we'll get into this at another point but uh, after everything came out last year during the election David Levitt just the country and now is living in Scotland since you he's living that. in Scotland where he is remodeling a castle and we are going to do a whole show on David Levitt that's going to be released after this yeah. because that's a whole and, and people I think there is some level of awareness there so if you if you heard about that last year and were as confused as I'm sure many of us were what to believe what's true you know even Glenn Beck got involved people really had a lot of questions so hopefully this should help piece together mm-hmm. between this and the show we do next it'll yeah. Pull it all together. So we, we get, the next section is key figures in the CS within the Hamlin group. So Relzo Stevenson, daughter of Richard Lloyd Anderson and grander, 
granddaughter of Garrett DeYoung Jr., both professors at BYU. And I've seen Anderson come up. Wasn't Anderson, I think it was a Doug Anderson, the one who released the statement about Tim Ballard? Well, he's not part of that family tree. I've done the no. genealogy. So he's, he's with the LDS's media office, and he was the one who sent it under his official church email to Vice that came out. But I have, as yet, found no relationship, no bloodline connection between Doug Anderson and the Richard Lloyd Anderson who's part of like the Hamlin family. So she's the in-law of Joe Benning and his wife, uh, Lee Patricia Udall, through her cousin Noel Sullivan's marriage to Lee's sister Sarah. She's the ex-wife of David Lee Hamlin and the mother of Rachel, Eliza, Katie, and Miriam Hamlin. You got Craig Roy Christensen, brother-in-law of David Lee Hamlin, through his marriage to Susan Suki Hamlin. He's an alleged abuser, along with his wife, of his nieces Rachel, Eliza, and Katie Hamlin. He is currently running for city council in Provo, Utah. Jeez. So, I graciously donated some uh, campaign advertisements uh, for him, which are on my Substack and my Rumble channel. Um, and where can they find that? You can find it at 1830goel.substack.com. Um, it's 1830goel. Let's put a, we'll put a link. We'll put up a link, I guess, later. Uh, another key figures within the CS, David Shalom Eastwood Levitt. He's the former Juab and Utah County attorney. His alleged title within the CS was conspirator. And he allegedly was tasked with smearing those in danger, who endangered the CS with the threat of exposure. He allegedly raped the Hamlin children and retained David Lee Hamlin's services to train his children to comply with ritual abuse. Um, and we'll dive into him. He gets his show. own show. Yeah, he, he will be quite uh, fruitful in that respect. Because I have a lot on him. Um, so Joseph Wood and Lee Patricia Edal, Benny and her artist out in Spring City. He is the owner of Horseshoe... Mountain Pottery in Spring City, Utah. Lee is a painter, but she also has her own business. Uh, it's called Mom Salve. It's like a hand cream. Joe is allegedly the punisher for the Spring City uh, Church of Satan Council set up by David Lee Hamlin to compete with the original Spring City CS Council. So he would be the nice. Bowen of Spring City. Yeah. Wow. So the Benians are the most frequently mentioned CS members of the Hamlin victim statements. They allegedly participated in child rape and multiple murders involving child sacrifice as well as the killings of adults. Um, LDS painter Brian Kershisnik. He learned to paint in Lee Binion's studio in Spring City. He originally started off trying to work with ceramics and pottery. It became pretty apparent that he wasn't any good at it. So Lee proposed that he come over to her studio and try painting. And he turned out to be a better painter than a potter. So he allegedly retained the services of David Lee Hamlin to train the Kershistic children to comply with ritual abuse. Um, specifically, the Hamlins went out to their home in Kanash, and he began, David Lee Hamlin began training his oldest son. Um, trying to induce parts and dissociation in him and Brian Kershisnik allegedly orally sodomized his own son in that episode. Kershisnik also allegedly raped the Hamlin daughters on multiple occasions. Katie Hamlin alleged that Kershisnik raped her at least 15 times over the course of her life. 
And I think she was referenced, or he was referenced earlier in one of the victim statements. At the yeah, he had the, uh, he had the, he has the death mask collection. That's right. Um, the consistent painting to the right is the Three Graces, which was the name the Hamlin children operated under while starring in child pornography films produced by their parents. That's, that's right. That's what the name was. So if you look at the painting, you've got two brunettes and a blonde. Rachel Camlin is blonde. Her sisters are brunettes. Um, Then you've got this. This is a painting from his series Death, A Suite of Prints. You can buy it for $1,200 on the Internet. By itself, it may seem innocuous, in light of the allegations against Krzysztof and the alleged uh, use of children in ritual sacrifices by the CS, it takes on an entirely wow. different meaning. So here you have a woman standing there with, when he paints dead people, there are no faces. They look basically like mummies almost. And the caption at the top is, many of the dead were very, very young. Is there any significance to the number? What is it, eight children eight, eight there? Eight kids, eight children. I'm sure there well, is. Well, there's, you know, if you count it, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight children. I can't say to you in all honesty that I can connect him to eight child homicides. It does jump out because most LDS artists do not paint this kind of material. They don't produce this kind of material. It's well, I mean, the one of the three graces, the three sisters, what we call the three graces is pretty condemning. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very... It completely goes along with what the girls told us. Yes. About. I mean, I mean it also, it. it's double-edged because you could I mean, be talking about the three graces from the Bible, like hope, faith, and love. But yeah, the way but that it's the, painted the, and no, in the context, I, the wider context, it fits and it tracks. So this is Timothy Nathan Tuttle, David Lee Hamlin's brother-in-law through marriage to his sister Cree Hamlin, also known as Mayra Gray. She changed her name after a trip to Israel. Um, he allegedly raped the Hamlin children as part of the CS. He was convicted of molesting his adopted daughter and died shortly afterwards from throat cancer. He died, not her. Yeah, he died. So, I mean, obviously we're talking mostly about the Hamlin children because they're the ones that we have statements about. Mm-hmm. It's well, not- they, they reference all of these people because they were there when the abuse of these other children took place. But... In the reality of things, there's probably dozens, if oh, not oh, hundreds, hundreds. That if if that's even, that's if, well, I can tell you. Sorry, what, go on. No, no, go on. <laughs> just let her finish. Let her finish. I apologize. No, I'm just saying if if people were as brave as the Hamlin sisters, we could have not just four books here. We could have hundreds. So, but keep in mind that was. It, David Hamblin, that's why he's so significant, is he was the loose cannon. That's why he was executed. The rest of them, the rest of them are so integrated into, the, into, the, into their secret society. They will never talk. Their kids are better, are, are, their kids are, are better trained. They, they're, they, they, are, they are tight, they are controlled, and they are organized. He was the one loose cannon that led to the undoing of everything. That's why they punished him. That's why they excommunicate him. And that's why his girls were punished by the Punisher. But it's, it's because he's of them. the gift that keeps on giving. Yes. And the other thing that I would say that's really significant about this, we're a year in, and none of these people's children, who are now all adults, have come forward to say, my parents didn't do this. 
Not one of them. Not one of David Le- not one of David Levitt's children has come forward to say, my dad's not a Satanist. My dad did not molest me. My dad did not molest these girls. I was there. That did not take place. None of them have come forward to deny it. Brian Kershisnik's kids, like Noah, Eden, and Lee, none of them have come forward to say, Brian Kershisnik didn't molest anybody. Like, none of the children of these families, and there's five pages worth of names here, None of those children have come forward to publicly disavow this or dispute these allegations. Not one. And, and the other thing, too, is, remember, these kids are threatened with their lives, and they've seen even the, even the power they have, that even David Hamblin, when they put him on, on you know, put, went to send him to court, and all this stuff came out, they saw that, 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 he is un, that they are untouchable. That even though all these, these statements came out, they were, they were, they were hidden, they were... They were um, they were, they were, they, they was, it was useless. What these girls feel like, what did they do? They exposed everything and no consequences. So these other kids that think, you know what, if I risk coming out, all the risk is on me being punished, me being, being possibly executed. And it, for what cost they'll just take this stuff. The judge, the juries, everyone will pay, take it. They'll hide it and they will not touch it. And there's no, I have no chance of, of, of bringing anything to light. Which is why this is important, and why our our viewers are important, because they, they are the only chance of these g- girls having hope to come out, because they feel like there's a chance that they can have justice. And these girls now are in witness protection. I take no, it. no, no. This is this is the craziest story. This is why this is so important. They have no protection and no shielding. Like Rachel lives in California. Um, I believe Eliza does as well. Um, Katie went on to become a filmmaker um, and a film producer. She was based out of London for a time, kind of alternated between London and New York. Um, Miriam, she was running communications for a California church. Like you can find her online as like running communications for that church and like one of its conventions in Texas. And she looks a, a lot like Roselle. I mean, it's like spitting image of a younger Roselle. Um, so another key figure in the CS, because we move on, yeah, let's keep is Lincoln Kevin Kelly and Khalil Julia Johnson Kelly. They allegedly paid David Lee Hamlin for training and forcing their children to comply with ritual abuse as well. Kevin Kelly was one of the advertising executives who left Bonneville Communications to go with Gordon Bowen to Ogilvy Mather in New York City. The Kellys also allegedly raped and abused the Hamlin children in addition to their own children. Um, so another key figure in the CS is another artist out in Spring City, Randall Lake, who allegedly raped children in the CS ceremonies. He's openly gay. He is a prominent advocate for LGBTQIA acceptance in the LDS. Um, this is James D. Harmston. He was a polygamist and founder of the True and Living Church of Jesus Christ of Saints of the Last Days. He was excommunicated for holding home ordinances and holding the true order of prayer, like temple prayer, in his home in the 90s. He was confronted by his bishops and his state presidency over it, but he continued to do it anyway, and he and his wife, were Elaine, were excommunicated, so they struck out and founded the True and Living Church of Jesus Christ of Saints of Latter-day Saint, of Saints of the Last Days. They allegedly performed polygamous ceilings with Hamlin's group in the Manti Temple after hours. 
So they got access to that temple, according to the Hamlin daughters. The polygamous group was mixed in with the CS. And they, Eliza Hamlin was to be sealed to James D. Ham, Harmston. So at that temple, like after the sealing took place, he put her on the altar and raped her. In the temple. In, in the, the temple. temple? Wow. Additionally, at a separate CS ceremony. This is the Manti Temple. In the Manti Temple, yes. Which is now under renovation? Yeah, but probably nothing in relation to this, I would imagine. No. So Harmston also allegedly raped a six-year-old girl in the Spring City Cemetery during a CS ceremony. So he was not just on the periphery of the group. He was actively participating in CS rituals. And all of these names are allegations from the victim statements, yeah. court documents. We're not just picking yeah. people and, and choosing. This is These are James and Linda Mooney, the co-founders of the Native American church that uh, David Lee Hamlin became a medicine man with. That was hey, his peyote. origin story. James Mooney is a self-styled medicine man conducting ceremonies with peyote. David Hamlin and Joe Binion had an extensive relationship with Mooney through the 90s. Mooney showed up to see us uh, gatherings and rituals. He participated in the the drugging and raping of children as part of the CS's rituals. And he's still out there. He's basically operating his Native American church. I mean, the reality franchise. is all of these people are still out there. Yes. But he's operating that Native American church that he founded as a franchise. And what he does is he sells memberships under the umbrella of his church to people who want to found their own alternative religious organizations because it offers them the theoretically protection. they'll be protected because they're part of this native american church yeah. Yeah. and so he's he's operating a franchise uh okay. religion so brian kapiner filmmaker and alleged cs member he was the one who allegedly filmed and produced the child pornography film starring rachel eliza and katherine hamlin as the three graces and he participated in the rapes of the hamlin children allegedly and all of these people are or many of these people are temple uh recommend holding churches i don't, I, I don't the know crop that. in terms of the lds artistic community say that again these are the cream of the crop in terms of the lds artistic community these are the filmmakers the painters the playwrights all of it so tom and paula schulte um are artists. They are alleged members of the Church of Satan and participants in the rape of the Hamlin children. They're currently based in Missouri. Paula Schulte is currently director and conductor of the River City Youth Choir and director of programming for the Jabberwocky Theater camps. In that capacity, she works directly with children in the present day. And it's very likely that people in Missouri have never heard of their ties to this group in Provo and Spring City. So this is Paul and Ann, Lar Paul and Ann Larson. That's Paul Larson. He's a c cinematographer and a filmmaker. He helped produce the film A Good Day to Die, featuring James Warren Flaming Eagle Mooney. Um, according to Rachel Hamlin, they allegedly hosted CS uh, sacrifice ceremonies in their home. Paul Arson allegedly also shot some of the child pornography films starting the Hamlin children as the Three Graces. He allegedly raped Rachel Hamlin during a 1993 game of No Bears Out Tonight in Spring City. Um, so so we, these, these names, the 
the three graces and whatever the last one was these are pornography films yes. of the three Hamlin sisters daughters. yes and they were so infamous that the Hamlin girls allege in their victim statements that when they were on Temple Square visiting in Salt Lake that people would recognize them from the films and come up and approach them and like you're the three graces wow like that's the level of the exposure wow that's how widespread it you was you think that film could get leaked leaked somehow well, one thing I know in like 22 years of like investigating pedophiles is they don't get rid of their mementos. Now, I would imagine that the film had been converted from like VHS or Super 8 to digital at this point, but they would keep it because they would want to relive that. Well, you would think some that, that they would also use it as currency. Find, you would think we could find that. One would hope, and I've actively been working on it, um, but it's I can't real. take possession I'm of it sure because it I'm not come. law enforcement. Oh, if I do true. become yeah, aware true. of where it's, where it's located, I will definitely give Mike Smith and the FBI a call. Assuming the, the law enforcement would do anything with it, which they won't well, so far we've Federal seen. law enforcement probably would do something about it if they had a, a beat on a location. So Paul Larson, his well, film I'm, Spirituality for the Uninsured. And that's another thing people can do that are watching, that if, if all this is too heavy, the least that you can do is talk to your local law enforcement and ask them to do something about this. Look into it. You know. Well, if, what, what, uh, let's get to that to the end. I okay. want to hear what you think people okay. should do. Uh, as a great so question. his film Spirituality for the Uninsured was acclaimed by LDS filmmaker Sterling Van Wagenen, a relative of Dean Van Wagenen, alleged CS member and husband of Belle Felice de Young, Roselle Stevenson's aunt. Belle, Nola, and Karma de Young were the original three graces. Say that again. Bell, uh, Nola, and, and uh, Karma de Jong were the original three graces. So this is so a, Karma a, is a, the grandmother, the so maternal like grandmother. So this is like an archetype that they keep recreating. It's a, it's yeah, a so they were performing in child pornography themselves as the original three graces. Is this part of like the Church of Satan Bible, like a, a church story that they're reenacting? Where does this come from? Well, the endowments are. So they have an, an inverted endowment where Satan wins in the end, and Satan prevails. So there are recurring themes the same way in... Yeah. in They're yes, basically inverting yes. all of the LDS's yes. even, even there's things in there these days, like wear garments um, and like do really sick things in them. I mean, it's that they will sing, they will make the kids, girls sing primary songs while they sodomize them. It is absolute yes. darkness. It is absolute darkness. They love mocking, like on Christmas, you know, they will mock Christ's birth by bringing one of these polygamous children in and literally sac have these kids or have it sacrificed and eat body parts of it. It is, it is, it is, I mean, it, we're talking to as, as much light as exists, there is yeah. very much an equal darkness and it is here. Yeah, so the significance of Sterling Van Wagen and praising Paul Larson isn't just his relation to Dean Van Wagenen, who's an alleged CS member and a husband of, like, Roselle Stevenson's aunt. Uh, he's now a convicted child sex offender who produced a Temple film for the LDS before his conviction. So he was one of the go-to guys for the LDS as a filmmaker. He was one of the co-founders of Sundance with Robert Redford. Wow. And he is now a convicted child sex offender who's in prison for molesting a child. Well, that's good. We got one. And so... The other significance here is David Lee Hamlin was Sterling Van Wagenen's therapist. Wow. 
do you have an abuser providing therapy services to another abuser? I could show you like a bit of the James Warren Flaming Eagle Mooney no, let's film. Keep going. Um, but the conclusions is the conclusions that I mapped out are the Hamlin CS group has familial ties to the elites of the LDS, be it in business, the church, or politics, or art. I, I would I would rephrase that the Hamlin, the, this church, this satanic organization has well familiar familiar ties to the elites of the L, of the LDS, business owners. And politicians. It's not just the LDS. It's it's. I guarantee that people who are not LDS, who are politicians. Well, yeah, James D. Harmson, who's a heretic. He was excommunicated from the church. He's part of it. It doesn't know any boundaries. I mean, no, I'm, I'm no, sure they, they think I guarantee they have judges, politicians who are. They don't care about religion. They care about. They the, care about compromising people who could be in a position to interfere right, for them. Right. So yeah. So this is. I mean, this is like. Gadiet and robbers, secret combinations to the core. And I'm you, you go, I've got a quote to read at the end. See, these connections may explain why David Lee Hamlin and his accomplices were able to evade culpability for raping his children and other children over a span of at least four decades. So David Lee Hamlin was not discreet. He was arrested for possession of peyote in 1999, but the charges were dismissed. He was arrested for poaching eagle feathers as part of his Indian religious ceremonies. Again, he faced no serious culpability. He was stripped of his license for having sex with his patients, and his daughters reported him on at least five separate occasions before the police arrested him in the 2012-2014 case. The court in his divorce found that he had molested his two eldest daughters, but he was not arrested or prosecuted. Even with a taped apology to his daughter for raping her, the Utah County Attorney's Office dismissed the charges against David Lee Hamblin in 2014. Like, that's the level. They had him on tape apologizing to one of his daughters for raping her. Wow. And they still didn't secure a conviction. Wow. So when you're sitting here and, and like, looking at it in that context, there's no innocent explanation for this. Like, you have the man on tape apologizing to a daughter for rape. Basically admitting. You take, him, you take him to a jury on that one count. Even if you don't get him on the other 17, you take him to a jury on that one count because you get, that's proof beyond a reasonable doubt. You could secure a conviction. He would be a registered sex offender, and that would have been dealt with back in 2014. But you didn't. You dropped the case. And the stated reason was, oh, we're having difficulty getting medical records because of the time that has elapsed. You don't need a medical record. You've got him on tape admitting and apologizing to his daughter. That, that tells you two things. A, he did it, and B, he knew it was wrong enough, or he was aware that it was wrong to the point where he felt he should apologize for it. I feel like someone with that level of depravity would not have that level of emotion. To yeah. I don't think it's a matter of emotion. I think he probably was caught off guard that his daughter was actually confronting him yeah. in this manner. And I believe that the daughter who did, based on the context, contextual clues, was Katie Hamlin. And Katie Hamlin is a, a firebrand. Like, she was the one who gave them the most trouble about this. So I want to read something here. Um and this obviously, you know, I know there's people of all faiths, 
and probably no faiths who are, who are watching this, who are fascinated, and they should be. This is something that I think is particular because this is so much an LDS problem. Although it's not just LDS, it's but it is geared towards uh, clearly a lot of people who are who have uh, infiltrated the church. For those who are having cognitive dissidents, who are saying this can't really be happening, and I can't believe that. That's that you know that there's no way that these people are are, are compromised. You know, there's a there is. There's, it's, it's said that the Book of Mormon is written for our day. And, you know, Moroni, who is one of the last prophets, as he's looking, you know, down the, the corridors of time, he, he sends a message that it is written directly to us in our day. And I think after watching this, I'm, I think this will be very stirring. And this is in Ether, chapter 8, verse 24 to 25. Wherefore, the Lord commandeth you, when ye shall see, because he's talking about the secret combinations that have brought down the, the, the Nephite nation. He says, wherefore, when you shall see these things come among you, uh, that ye shall, oh, wherefore, the Lord commandeth you, okay, so it's a commandment, that when ye shall see these things, these secret combinations come among you, that ye shall awaken to a sense of your awful situation. Because of this secret combination, which shall be among you, or woe be it unto you, because of the blood of them who have been slain, for they cry f- from the dust for vengeance upon it, and also upon those who build it up. For it come to pass that those who buildeth it up seeketh to overthrow the freedom of all lands, nations, and countries. What have we been talking about on this show? The correlations between, between Utah and China. China has deeper ties in Utah than anywhere else. The World Economic Forum deep ties to Utah, the smart cities, the, the UN, which is pushing all this globalist agenda, the ties to Utah, the ties to the church. For it come to pass that whoso builds it up seeketh to overthrow the freedom of all lands, nations, and countries. If we can't see it happening, I don't know what we have our eye, we do need to awake, awaken. And it bringeth to pass the destruction of all people, for it is built up by the devil. I don't know how you can see this and not see the correlation who is the father of all lies, even that same liar who beguiled our first parents, yea, even the same liar who hath caused man to commit murder from the beginning, who hath hardened the hearts of men, that they have murdered the prophets and stoned them and cast them out from the beginning. And that's after he describes the the secret combinations that were among the Jaredites and then sends this warning to us. I don't know how a set of scriptures could be more said after what we just watched and to our you know to our listeners and viewers i hope that you that we will awaken to our sense of awful situation and that the blood of these people will cry which is what you're doing is bringing these voices up that is be that that these our leaders are trying to suppress and i pray that we can bring justice to these voices because that is our god-given responsibility is to shine light and bring the things in darkness to light Amen. Alexa, you had a question earlier. What do we do? Uh, I have a lot of questions. <laughs> I, have a lot, I have a lot of questions, a lot of concerns, you know, not just for these brave women that have come out, but also for the responsibility that is now on all of us with the responsibility of knowing 
oftentimes I, I struggle with the idea of faith and believing in a higher power. You know, I'm Jewish. I, I didn't grow up with the scriptures. I didn't grow up with a lot of the knowledge. And it's hard enough to, under, to wrap your head around faith and God. But then you think about the contrast with the adversary and, and Satan and wondering, is Satan real? And we've had chaos unleashed in our lives and we've seen Satan's hand in our life and you can acknowledge his existence. But after a show like this today, there's no denying his presence in this, in this world, in this physical world and the spiritual war. And with knowing now how deep the evil runs, we're all tasked now with the responsibility of what we can do about it and how our role is, what our role is in taking these people, the ones that we know, not just the allegations, but knowing what we can do now. And I'm going to tell you, to our viewers and listeners, um, the masses will never, will never accept this. You don't expect this to get the masses to wake up and see what's going on which means if you start talking about this, the masses are going to think you're crazy. And you've got a choice if, if, you, if your heart tells you, if, if what you've seen, if what you know, has been shared with you rings true, you have a choice. Keep silent and allow this evil to grow. And, you are, and as you are silent, you will become an accomplice. For the only thing evil requires is for people to remain silent to grow. And that is how this demon, this darkness, this dragon, has, in the 80s when this stuff was brought up, how many thousands of girls have been raped, molested? How many people have been murdered? Because people are afraid to sound, oh, I don't want to seem like a conspiracy theory. What has he said that's conspiracy? These are all, these are all court, these are statements and, and straight out of courts. What will you do? And I already know what most people will do. Most people are going to say, well, that's, that, that sounds too fantastical. I don't, want, I don't want to be associated with it because we're cowards. We're a nation of cowards. So I pray that some of you will have the, the, the strength, the character to sh continue to shine light on this, to talk to your friends, to share this video, and to, and to stand up and, and let people know what you think. And I will tell you that these, the, the Bowens, the men like this, these monsters, this is God's battle. This is not ours, but he expects us to play a role. God's going to win. This is the Lord's battle. The question is, are you going to stand up and play a role, or are you going to sit on the sidelines like a coward? I'm, I, I'm furious. How could you not be furious reading these, what these girls have to say? What are your final thoughts? My final thoughts is, you know what your duty is. You know what your obligation as a saint is, or as a Christian in general is. And your obligation is to oppose evil where you find it. That begins at home. One of the reasons people don't confront this is because they are themselves compromised. That's why you can't have sin in your life, because groups like this will they will capitalize on anything that you've done that's wrong or unethical or immoral in order to deter you from speaking out against it. That is why it is so important to maintain your communion with God, and the first way to do that is to avoid sin. So that when situations like this come up, they don't have any leverage over you. They can't capitalize on anything to get you to turn and look the other way. What I say to you today is that I'm 
not a perfect man. I'm not the world's smartest man, but I devoted over a year of my life in counting to this. I anticipate devoting at least 24 more months of my life to this. Um, there's nothing that they can say to me because truth is an absolute de defense to defamation. Everything that I have published on my Substack and everything that I've said here today, I'm fully confident that if one of these people did try to go to court with me, it would be to my benefit because then I would get discovery. I would get written interrogatories. I would get depositions. And that's why they haven't done it. I know that they're aware of me. I know that people that have been named here today are aware of that substack. Well, suit up. Put on the armor of God. Let's freaking go to war. Indeed. Because we're going to win. God bless you. God bless America. God bless Utah. Thanks for watching. <laughs> <laughs>